sometimes people just like to have something to fiddle with their fingers. What else going on? Nothing, because we have nothing in the follow-up section this week, except for an item we decided we're not talking about this week, and that's it. So we we actually genuinely have no follow-up for real, as confirmed by John Syracuse himself. We had a long, uh, you know, I was away on vacation, and we, you know, we had a weird recording schedule. What the hell was our last show about? It was so long ago. It doesn't really matter. I don't know. So, yeah, we should, uh, I guess, talk about Skylake, because that's a thing as of today. Well, sort of. I mean... I think the most boring Skylake chips launched today, the ones that go in like iMacs and desktops. Well, are they the most boring? Like, I think Intel thinks that they're the most exciting because they are extreme, to use the 90s parlance. Like they're the <laughs> uh, the, the unlocked, able to be overclocked, like Intel is actually talking about overclocking in them. You know what I mean? Like they're the ones, they're sort of the PC enthusiast chips. Not that there's many of them left, but like maybe they think that's like the only place that is a potentially a growth market. So... Uh, I don't think they are the most boring ones. Maybe they're the, the least relevant to people who buy Apple computers because, like you said, these are just going to be the ones that they go on the iMacs, and the ones that they go on the iMacs aren't going to be overclocked, and it's going to be the middle-range one with the Iris Pro graphics, and it's like, whatever. Um, but I think Intel, think because they were released and announced at, what is it, Gamescom? What the hell's the name of that conference? It doesn't matter. Anyway, a gaming-related thing, and so... They're going to be releasing the chips that would be interested uh, of interest to people who are building gaming PCs. And they want to know, I'm building my next gaming PC. I want to maybe overclock it. Maybe I want to put two, three, four uh, GPUs, uh, graphics cards inside it and gang them together in some way. And so, yeah, these... Right. It's really about ethics and overclocking. Oh, my God. Yeah, so these are excited what intel thinks are exciting but you're saying they're not exciting because they're not like the ones that are going to go in most of the macs that apple sells which are the laptops and they're not anything that would ever go into mac pro right no but it isn't it isn't even just that i'm saying even for the markets that they are intended for i think it's a it's an incremental update at best you know it what what is apparently like the big thing with skylake is really you know it's a small incremental improvement in performance but it's a it's an allegedly substantial improvement in power consumption and battery life and so to have these high clock desktop chips come out that are you know high wattage high clocks not meant for laptops where the power stuff is probably not like super tuned in and or at least super emphasized uh it's interesting but only on a mild level for a very small number of people like it doesn't really matter if, if the desktop chips get 10% more power efficient. Uh, it doesn't have that big of an effect on them. You know, yeah, yeah, you can, you can you know, slam against the TDP more and get a little more clock speed out of it, maybe. But for the most part, the exciting part here is when these come to laptops. And because you know, we, we have heard so many things that Skylake is going to be this major power improvement and everything. Uh, you know, the, the reality is that matters so much more in laptops. So if we can actually get... 20% more performance in a laptop or you know 20% more battery life that's way more impressive and that and that could really that could make a big difference in things like the MacBook 1 or the 11 inch air where the battery right now is pretty short really for what what you need it for uh, or it could it could allow Apple to you know obviously I would hope with like the 15 inch line I would hope they would use this new savings to just bank some battery life and bring it up like to 12 hours instead of nine or something like that, you know, or, you know, bring it up to six hours of heavy use instead of five or four. Uh, that'd be great. In reality, what's probably going to happen instead is they're probably going to just redesign the 15 inch uh, to make it thinner 
and lighter. And, you know, I don't love that they keep doing that, but it's at least interesting and exciting, and, and certainly a lot of people like that. And so, you know, that's where the action is going to be with Skylake, is when it comes to the laptops. In the meantime, you know, I don't... As it's sitting here in desktops and not even the Mac Pro, like it's just sitting here like in, in like high-end, mostly PC desktops and maybe the iMacs, uh, that just isn't that interesting to me. So I haven't read too much about these chips, and I think not everything has been released because even though they were sort of launched at this game thing, the technical details, according to non-tech anyway, are not coming out until Intel's developer forum thing, like where they're going to tell you about the guts of the stuff. But this is this is their... Oh God! What the hell is it? Talk right? The new architecture—it's <laughs> the same. It's not a shrink. It's still uh, you know fourteen nanometers. Uh, it's their talk. It's a newer architecture. But what is new and different about that architecture? I don't think we know the details yet uh, uh, officially. Um, and and the, and this thing that we'll link in the show is benchmarking them all like not impressive performance game for the desktop ones. Some weird things where it's actually like a couple percent slower due to some issue they couldn't work out when using uh, external GPU. But whatever, like a low single digit percent increase uh, on the stuff that you're doing. And like Marco said, power savings are not of interest for the desktop things because it's like whatever. It's similar power range of the other chips. If this is a new architecture. What is different about it that, that's going to give us this supposed uh, big increase in power savings? Because normally you think you get uh, you'd get a big increase in power savings maybe with a shrink, right? Uh, but this is not a shrink; it's just an architectural change. And I guess, like, I, I, in reading this article, I can see how they can get a, a little bit of savings out here from moving execution units around and having like the display some some fixed function hardware in the display chipset so you don't have to send data out through dram and back into the gpu and all, you know all sorts of small changes to save uh power lower voltage for uh, the, the memory interfaces and stuff like that um but I'm, i you know we don't know at least i don't know the technical details of the internet so i'm curious to where the big savings are coming from i mean i, I believe that they're there from you know our tipster and other people uh, you know speculating about skylight saying that that, that is going to be the selling point of this line of chips that it's going to be well who cares not a big deal for desktops but for laptops you should see a nice power savings i want to know where that power savings comes from because i think that'll be interesting especially if it's not it's not like they it's clear that they didn't spend their time working on performance because it's like well performance you know whatever it's basically a wash maybe a little bit better but power savings boy that's going to be great and we did it without a shrink how do we do it so i look forward to those details when they are revealed our first sponsor this week is our friends at cards against humanity and as usual they have instead of a normal ad read they have asked john to review a toaster Syracuse are talking about toasters More exciting than a roller coaster Will it fit on his countertop? I hope the reviews never stop This week's toaster is the Hamilton Beach 31330 toaster oven This is a pretty big toaster uh, It is uh, a, what I would call a four-slice toaster Although, of course, the manufacturer claims that it's a six-slice toaster But this claim requires the standard miniature bread that they use in the toaster oven <laughs> box shots, right? Like, they don't put anything in there for scale But honestly, that bread is microscopic So anyway, <laughs> four slices comfortably Like Mr. Burns, this toaster has a mighty hump 
on the back of it. Ew. Uh, those humps, you know the humps I'm talking about, where it's like at some point in the past decade or so, all toasters grew humps of some kind because someone decided that it's great to be able to advertise a toaster oven by showing a picture of a pizza inside it. And, of course, a pizza's not going to fit in a, in a rectangular oven very easily, but if you put a little rounded hump on the back of it, you get a little extra room to shove your pizza in there and blah, blah, blah. You know, my toaster does not have this, John. You don't have any hump? You sure? No. It's flat. Is it pre-hump? It's a pre-hump toaster. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, so you're pretty old. My toaster that you said was inferior to your toaster does not have the hump. Yeah. I, I, I have a small hump. Most of them have humps. But anyway, <laughs> this, it's made, the hump is made to look larger because this toaster is skinnier at the top than at the bottom. So honestly, like, maybe the, the hump is only a couple inches, or right? Maybe it's the same size as the average, but it looks huge. It, it really stands out the way this, this toaster is shaped. The wire rack is kind of medium gauge. The wire rack is not rectangular. It's like a rectangle. And then there's this extra little thing, like a little house poking out the back that goes into the hump section. That's how big the hump is. That The wire rack is like, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's a rectangle with another thing attached to it sticking out of there. Um, supposedly, again, the purpose of the hump is to, uh, you know, accommodate a round pan for something like a pizza. But this toaster does not come with a round pan, which seems weird that this is such a prominent hump and doesn't actually come with a round pan or a round rack or anything. And I love like the promo pictures. They show a pizza sitting on top of the wire rack of the toaster, just like just on top of the wires, not even in a pan. I feel like that would be a disaster. It, that would have to already be done before it's put in there. Right. Yeah. If you cook it and you put if you put a fake uh, pizza made out of wax or whatever they make the food out of, you know, when they take pictures of it so it doesn't melt under the hot lights. Uh, anyway. Uh, it comes with a rectangular pan. The rectangular pan doesn't quite fill the, the the toaster edge to edge. I don't know if they did that on purpose to try to allow hot air to come around or whatever, but it seems like kind of a shame. Um, plus, there's a little small wire rack that goes in the pan. Uh, the knob situation, this is a three-knob toaster. Top one is for temperature, <laughs> uh, but you still need to set it to toast if you want to toast. Middle one is for function, toast, bake, whatever. Bottom one is the timer knob. And this is one more toaster where all three knobs have to be in the right position in order for you to toast. You got to make sure the top knob is on toast, and you got and you got to turn the the function thing on toast, and you got to turn the right no- the bottom knob every single time to a particular angle. This one on the knob also says, "Please turn the timer knob past fifteen and then back to the time that you want every time." Oh, gross! I, I don't even know if you need to do that because I think it feels like you can just turn it to like you know they have a very limited range, like maybe ten or fifteen degrees that constitutes the entire range of toasting, and you have to turn it in that range. The knob feels okay. They don't wiggle or feel loose. They feel like, you know, solid, but they're pretty darn hard to turn. They're not very grippy. They're like actually kind of hard to turn. Um, and the indicator of like where the knob is pointing is just kind of like a dull pill-shaped lump in the shiny uh, metal or, or shiny plastic face of the knob. And the knobs are pretty tall. So you're trying to line up like sort of a indistinct capsule shaped lump in the metal that's on a knob that's like an inch off the surface and you're like way above on an angle and you're trying to line up that lump with like the exact unmarked spot in the 10 to 20 degree range that constitutes toasting depending on like what angle you're it's it's really not easy to get repeatable stuff and it it just doesn't it feels like too much effort like you're turning a little especially if you have to turn past 15 and like force it back not a, a great experience um, it's got four unshielded, uh, resistive heating elements in it, uh, which I knew were going to be slower than the, the big, thicker quartzy looking things. Four minute, 30 second toast time. Not great. At least it's not over five minutes, but when it does toast, it's pretty even one edge. was a little bit darker than the other, but it was kind of like a smooth gradient. I would say it's, it makes acceptable toast. Takes a little bit too long. Crumb tray blessedly comes straight out, so you're much less likely to dump the crumbs back into the toaster when you're trying to remove it, so a thumbs up on that. Door feels a little flimsy, but at least it opens all the way, and you don't feel like you're breaking it at any point. Uh, 
the little claws on the door that like when you pull the door out also pull the tray out a little bit uh this toaster has the same problem as the other ones where it has two different positions for the rack and you're supposed to use the middle or a higher position when you're making toast but the little claws like we talked about how do you deal with the little claws that pull the tray out when pull the wire rack out when the wire rack can be in two different positions and a couple of the new manufacturers are clever things that the fancy breville one has like magnets which i think are really cool that pull it out this one just punts on it and says, you know what? Our little claws are only going to pull the tray out when it's in the bottom position. When it's in the top position, the little claws do nothing, which is <laughs> kind of lame. I don't know who made that decision, especially since most of the time you're using it in toast mode, aren't you? I don't know. Maybe most of the time people are using it in oven mode. But anyway, it seems lame. I, I have never until now considered the possibility that a toaster oven would have multiple rack heights. Are we supposed to be changing our rack height depending on what we cook? Because I never have. Does yours have multiple rack heights? I have no idea. I've never even looked. It's pre-hump. It could be pre-multiple rack heights. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> so the one that we had until it broke recently, and so I am toaster oven list, which is terrible. I know a guy who has some extras. <laughs> yeah, so I hear. Um, it had a very interesting design. It had a wire rack that was... Um, kind of in an upside or kind of in a U shape, sort of. I mean, it was flattened, but the way it would work is you would put it in with when it looked like a U and it would be very close to the bottom of the toaster. And then if you put it so that it was an upside down U, it would bring the rack such that it was about the middle of the toaster. Don't you listen to my reviews? I just reviewed a toaster that had that exact feature a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> Maybe it's the same toaster. Anyway, yours might have different heights. I think a lot of people buy these, never look at the manual, and if there's nothing written on the surface of the toaster, they just put the rack wherever they want it to, and that's it. But yeah, in in the recent maybe five years, ten years, most toaster ovens have been coming with racks with either multiple positions. Uh, yeah, usually multiple positions because the higher position, the position that looks crazy to all of us, like when we were growing up, the toasters all had their racks way down low in the bottom. That's the only place they would go that was that. Uh, now toaster ovens all seem to have a higher position it looks way too high but that's where they want you to do basically everything except for bake they want you to toast there they want you to broil there only if you're baking you're supposed to bring it down to the bottom row. this one is no different it want, when you were toasting it wants you to put the rack in sort of the, the midpoint of, of the oven and only when you're baking you're supposed to put it down on the bottom this seems like a step backwards in toaster oven convenience because the whole point of this thing is, is like you can put basically anything in a toaster oven and get okay results out of it with very little effort. But once you start putting in the complexity of multiple rack heights and... It's not that complicated. Like, I feel like the, the toaster oven is used either mostly as an oven and mostly as a toaster. So this is kind of a default position. And honestly, if you just leave it in the high position, it bakes things fine. Mostly they want you to use the bottom rack because if you're baking something that is tall so that it doesn't get... Like, if you're baking something... like maybe Even just a big baked potato maybe starts getting too close to the heating elements on top, so you want to move it down, but... I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I think it is an improvement because when they were on the bottom, it was basically impossible to get even toasting because you're so close to the bottom elements and so far from the top ones that it was always, you know, a crapshoot. <laughs> when they're in the middle, it's better. But anyway, overall for this toaster, I give it a passing grade. Nothing on it is terrible. Nothing on it is particularly great, but it is certainly better than some of the really, really bad toasters that we reviewed recently. It's, and it's 50 bucks ish so it, it feels quality-wise like a $50 toaster, but... uh yeah, it just b- barely gets passing grade, I think. <laughs> A glowing <laughs> review. Yep. Thank you very much to Cards Against Humanity for sponsoring once again. Okay, so I have big news in an otherwise completely empty week. Are you guys sitting down? 
Are you running for president? I am running for president as a Republican like the rest of the country is. No, not really. <laughs> let's talk about that. The people will love that. Yeah. Oh, let's not. No, there's not a fast text update. Uh, I have joined 2013. 2012. 2012, whatever. <laughs> I have a Retina Mac now. Woo! Do you have it or is this a work computer? Well, it's sitting next to me, but it belongs to work. All right. Just well, that's, that's close. <laughs> I mean, that's baby steps. You know, that that, that helps. Yeah, I, I'm taking a step in the right direction. So um, the, the funny thing behind this is I was talking in... Um, in Slack with a bunch of people, including the two of you guys, um, about, you know, I, I'm, it's about time for me to get a new personal machine. I have Aaron's MacBook Air that I'm using right now, which has been underwater about eight times. I have two late 2011 uh, high-res anti-glare MacBook Pros, one with a platter drive and eight gigs of RAM, which is mine, one with a SSD and, and 16 gigs of RAM, which is works. I knew it was about time to upgrade, and I knew I should probably wait for Skylake, and so I knew I wasn't going to order anything for me anytime soon until the Skylake one comes out. But I've been working really hard lately. I'm really getting sick of my work computer having screaming fans anytime I do anything. And really, I was supposed to get an upgrade in June at my three-year work anniversary, uh, because that's when AppleCare runs out. And... I didn't get one then for various and sundry reasons. And so today, just mostly to be snarky, I emailed our IT guy and was like, hey, just a reminder, not only is this computer three years old in that I've received it three years ago, but even when I got it, at that point, we weren't buying new Macs, we were buying refurbished old Macs. And so even though I got it in mid-2012, it's actually a late 2011 Mac. And so... I said that really just to kind of remind him that I'm looking for a new Mac at some point. Uh, next thing I know, he's going to the Apple store and getting me a 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro, which, if you're going to choose a problem to have, is a pretty solid problem to have. So, um, so yeah, so I got a maxed-out 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro. The funny thing about it was I had concluded along, well, really because of the tutelage of um, Stephen Hackett, Marco, and a few others, um, I should get the not-discrete GPU MacBook Pro because there's really no need for me to have a discrete GPU MacBook Pro. I said to our IT guy, listen, I think what I want is the not-discrete one, um, but I want the terabyte hard drive if I can get it. I want... Um, what was the, oh, the maxed out uh, processor, if I can get it. But don't worry about the, the, the baller baller one. Just get me the, the Intel GPU one. That's all I need. So he said, okay, got it. Uh, he comes back three hours later, whatever it was, and says, hey, uh, also, I gave you the super loaded one because it was only $100 more, and I figured you'd like it. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Close enough, man. This is kind of the problem when, like, uh, People know you're interested in something and want to, like, if someone's like, Marco likes coffee, right? I should buy him some coffee, but you don't know anything about coffee and you're going to buy Marco coffee, right? The odds of that, like, maybe Marco would appreciate the thought, but it's like, and especially if Mar and then you're in the situation, like, it's their job to buy you a computer and you have preferences and you communicate them, but you just know if you're not there during the purchase, it's like, they're going to do something that they think is the nice thing to do. It's like, if I could just, if I, let me just tell you exactly what to get, just get this. I know exactly what I want. Just get this. Yep. Yep. And that's what I tried. But they feel like they want to do something. Even better, like give me the give me the credit card. I will order it and give you back the credit card. <laughs> yeah. Like that's even better if you can get them to do that. Well, and in his defense, you know, not only was he trying to do the right thing um, and get me even more than what I asked for, um, and not only that, but I'm pretty sure part of what influenced him was that he could have this computer today 
And if I had gotten the not discrete GPU one, it wasn't, you know, that's not carried in any normal Apple store. Well, the base model is, but not with, not with the terabyte and, and the upgraded CPU. So, yeah. Exactly. So, here again, like, I'm not mad about it. Um, I'm actually really excited to have a new computer because, again, I, as much as I do love my high-res anti-glare 15-inch MacBook Pros, um, they're both getting pretty long in the tooth now. Um, but I bring all this up actually because I wanted to share what it's like to have a Retina Mac for the first time in 2015. Um, <laughs> because all of you have lived this before, but I haven't. So I want my moment in the sun, damn it. I mean, all of you, I don't have any Retina Macs. Well, you believe in ancient cheese graters, so you don't even count. <laughs> how am I the only one of the, of like three alleged Apple experts, how have I been the only one who's had a Retina Mac since 2012? But you're also the only one who loves to buy expensive things and then sell them and buy different expensive things, whereas Casey and I are much more cautious. Well, it's more that it's more that John, you you just don't own laptops, generally speaking. I, do, I have two of them sitting in the room with me right now. Yeah, but they're not yours. Yeah, you know, like I, I think I think if you were the kind of person who who bought a laptop for yourself, I think you would have you would have had one sometime in the last three years. Yeah, that that's definitely true. If I was a laptop person, I would have had a Retina one a long time ago. Yeah. See, and I am a laptop person, but just like John said, um, I try to be frugal whenever possible. I usually fail, but I try. And so one way or another, um, this is my first Retina Mac, uh, and I'm going to try to make this fairly quick. Retina screens are beautiful. A Retina display delivers the very best viewing experience. That's the first thing I noticed. Second thing I noticed is, oh my God, everything is huge. Because I'm used to this high-res um, anti-glare MacBook Pro, whose resolution I don't even remember offhand. 1680. Uh, sure. That sounds about right. It is. Um, whereas this 15-inch Retina MacBook Pro is considerably less than that effective resolution. 1440. Is it 1440? Yeah, but you can change it. There's a setting. You can. Oh, the, the scaled mode. for Yeah. yeah all right. But native is 14. I always keep forgetting that. The na- native 2X is 1440. That is tight. Yeah, it, it is huge everything is huge by comparison which is a little bit weird i haven't yet changed the scaling i suspect i'm going to it's only a matter of time yeah just change it it's no big deal just change the name (laughs) where do i know that from i don't even know um you're not even getting apple references anymore come on sorry although to be fair i don't remember what he was talking about like i don't which which app it was yeah i I don't remember the the app i just remember that it was a jobs email just change the name not that big of a deal Oh, that does ring a bell. Oh, well. Um, that was the first thing I, or the second thing I noticed after how beautiful it was, was, oh my God, I, have, I cannot put anything on the screen. Everything is enormous. Uh, yes, I'm aware of scaling. I just haven't tried it yet. I wanted to live with it as it was for a little while first. The third thing I noticed was, you know, I'm trying furiously to prep this thing for, um, for work tomorrow. And I'm installing VMware Fusion, which is the particular VM software that I use um, just because that's what I bought forever ago, and I um, haven't ever switched to Parallels since. Fusion's way better. Don't Please don't email us. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I was installing VMware Fusion, and the first screen that comes up after whatever generic like OS X screens uh, pop up for the installation, first real VMware Fusion screen comes up, and oh my sweet holy, it is ugly everything is blurry (laughs) what has happened and i've never had this experience before and so ignorance was kind of bliss in the past because everything was blurry you could argue but now it sticks out like a sore thumb and i can already tell this is going to get annoying really quickly now to be fair that's the only screen i've noticed in using this such this machine in the last couple of hours um that was like that but oh my god it's so blurry what happened 
Yeah, it was way worse back in 2012. Like for anybody who bought some of the first generation Retina MacBook Pro, like it was way worse back then because web pages were all, all just looked terrible. Like you know, software updated itself pretty quickly, but it took the web a long time to really get into having high DPI versions of anything. And so, and websites on Retina still you, like you'll occasionally run into one now that's not Retina, but they're they're much fewer and further between than, than they were in 2012. Um, but you know, to be fair, VMware has had three years and more if they were you know once the iphone 4 came out in 2010 with its retina screen it, you know any observer would have been like you know this is probably going to expand for the rest of the lineup we should probably get ready for this then when the retina ipad came out a year later hmm you know what we should probably get ready for this <laughs> that was 2011 then and it's like okay now it, like anybody who is still not retina ready now like that's their fault really that's this is beyond reasonable well vmware doesn't really have much of a ui uh so maybe they just don't have don't dedicate the resources and have the department that is responsible for updating the graphics because really like you're mostly not looking at vmware as you are you're mostly looking at whatever virtual machine you're using inside the thing you know Right. And to be fair, this was an installation screen. And I haven't gotten to the point that I've put a VM on the machine yet, but I believe that all of the honest-to-goodness VMware screens will be retinified or whatever you want to call it, high-res. Um, While we're complaining about VMware, by the way, I have a, a pet VMware bug that has been with me since 7.0. I figure what they're up to now. They're 7 point something, point something, whatever. So when 7 came out, I had this bug where you launch VMware and it shows me that little screen that shows you're like the virtual machine library with like the little screenshots of everything. And uh, if I launch it, that thing comes up and I quickly double click the VM I want to launch, uh, it crashes, right? If you let it launch, you let that screen with the little library come up and you just wait a couple seconds. It's one of those old school bugs, like classic Mac OS cooperative multitasking memory corruption. Just wait, just let it, don't, don't touch anything. Just let it sit there. And then go over and double click. It's fine. And it's been a repeatable bug through multiple minor. And I think they even did like a major. That was 7.1. I forget. Multiple revisions. Every time it says send a crash report, I do. I think they're just going to Apple VMware. Probably never sees them. But boy, I love those kind of bugs where it's like, just don't touch it. Just be careful. Just wait. Just wait. Wait. Okay, now it's good. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell could that possibly be? I have no idea. Anyway. So um, that's basically all I have to say about the computers so far. Um, it does seem very nice. I, the fans did kick on once or twice as I was doing an installation or two. And by comparison, they were super quiet. I don't know if that means that they're quieter in general now. I don't know if that's... Asymmetrical. Air is pulled into vents and propelled through sculpted cavities by fans with asymmetrically positioned blades. In most fans, the blades are positioned symmetrically which creates a single identifiable frequency. We positioned ours asymmetrically to spread the sound over a variety of frequencies, which makes it seem quieter and less intrusive. Every part of the enclosure makes a contribution that directly benefits the user. Right. And so that's the thing is I'd never experienced this for myself. So um, that was very exciting. Uh, it doesn't sound like a jet engine slash hairdryer anymore, which I was very happy about. Um, so that's all I have to say so far about like software and whatnot. Um, I will note, however, that this has a force touch trackpad. Yeah. Marco's favorite thing. Yeah, so you got four times the pixels and infinitely fewer buttons. Right. Still just one fewer, by the way. <laughs> wow. Anyway, um, when you first get a brand new Mac with the Force Touch trackpad, it is the worst trackpad in the entire world. However, 
There is a magical switch one can flip. Wait, hang on. Before you talk about the magical switch, what's making you say that when you first get it, it's like the worst ever? Like, what about it? You comes out of the box, you're not touching anything, you start using it. What what repels you? It's that there's a click, but it's almost it almost feels like I don't know, like a fingernail got under the trackpad. So like it clicks, but it doesn't feel right. It's almost mushy. It's almost like a thud. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It just it 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 doesn't have the depth that you expect. Yes, I understand there is no depth. It's all an illusion. I'm just saying, you know, if you don't really think about that fact and you're just clicking around, you're expecting more depth than it has. It feels like something's broken. So like a th- you're saying like a fingernail caught on like a traditional button, but rather than going all the way down, it feels like it goes to about like half travel. Perfect description. All That's right. why we keep you around. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. So I hated it. I hated it immediately. I, I had a feeling I was going to be able to get over it, but I hated it. But I thought to myself, self, why don't you take a look in system preferences? And so I took a look in system preferences, and sure enough, there is a completely unlabeled, or two completely unlabeled sliders. Well, I shouldn't say completely unlabeled. There's a, They're labeled click and tracking speed. Click did not mean anything to me, but there's light, medium, and firm as the three options. And I realized after thinking about it for a second, I was like, what the hell is... Oh, right. When I switched from medium, which was the default to firm, angels came out, came down from the heavens and everything was right in the world. The pressure you apply activates an electromagnet that responds with tactile feedback. So now instead of just seeing what's happening on the screen, you feel it too. And I have no problem with this trackpad anymore. You have no problem with it? Like, do you like it better? Is it just like, well, it's acceptable. It's the same as the other one. You you got them right next to each other. You can like go back and forth and like click, (laughs) click, click, click. So, yeah, I mean, I'm doing this mostly to get a rise out of Marco. Um, I I wouldn't say I don't have a problem with it. Um, I wouldn't say I like it more. I would say I like it marginally less. Um, It doesn't feel as crisp as it used to. And there have been occasions when... I think because there is no physical depth to it, it's misconstrued when I when I'm dragging or or clicking and holding, and when I'm not. Uh, it's hard to describe, and I haven't really put my finger on how to like reproduce it. But there have been occasions where I've thought I've released a click, but my thumb is still physically resting on the bottom of the trackpad, and the software seems to think that I'm still holding down on the button. Have you done the thing that some people have talked about, like with the with the physical button, because it was hinged on an edge, we all kept using the thumb because the bottom, your thumb is usually near the bottom and the bottom part is the easiest place to click. But when no part of it moves, they're all equally valid. So you can stop using the thumb, so the theory goes, and use whatever finger you're using to control the cursor is also the finger that you use to click. And no matter where you do it, it's the same exact amount of effort required. Have you tried that? Is that even a thing? My brain understands everything you just said. My hands are already writhing in revolt for that idea. <laughs> but it should be easier because it's not coordinating like you're not cording. You're not trying to like, oh, like press my thumb over here, but then let me drag my pointer finger over there. It's all just, you know, one thing. No, I totally understand what you're saying. And and all, all snark aside, I just I think it would be really hard to train myself not to use my thumb. A perfectly reasonable thing to do. I mean, I'm sure I could. 
it's just I, it, it would be hard for me to train myself to do that. So I just think like it's one of those things that is made possible by the Force Touch trackpad. And of course, it's not what we're all used to. But like maybe someone who this is their first laptop ever, like a kid, like just accepts they, their habits are built on that. And they would find it barbaric to have to press down with your thumb on this particular edge of the thing while moving your finger over there. I don't know. I haven't tried either. And I hate trackpads overall in general. I'm just I've heard that from other people. I'm just wondering if. Uh, you should give that a try. Like, give it a give it a good chance to be like maybe this is better. Although I think you're about to talk about something else that is even more potentially blasphemous about your trackpad habits. <laughs> well, be, before we get there, let, let me just rebut slightly. Uh huh. What what drives me nuts about the Force Touch trackpad is not that I hate it. I don't hate it. And you know, I know that the next time I buy a laptop, it's almost certainly going to have one, and I'll just have to deal with it, and that'll be fine. It's not going to stop me from buying a new laptop forever. You know, I'm not going to like hold on to the old version forever because I don't like this trackpad. Like, it's not... I don't hate it that much. It's not your Apple extended keyboard, too. Right. But what I find unfortunate about it is that what you're saying is you're basically in apology mode for it. It's like, well, this is almost good, or this is great except for this unreliable thing, and, and the click is almost as good as the old one. You know, it's it's all these apologetic excuse excusing statements about it because it really isn't as good and it, it what bothers me about this trackpad is that we had a great trackpad before that very few people had problems with you know yes you could only click firmly on the bottom because it was hinged at the top but buttons used to be at the bottom on many pc laptops they still are that way that's why it was hinged that way that's why we use our thumb on the bottom and everyone's been fine with that it's been fine more importantly it was rock solid reliable I have. I don't think I've ever misclicked on a trackpad that had tap to click disabled. To go make something to go, to take something like the trackpad that is such a fundamental thing and to make it even even five percent or one percent less reliable, it, you know, it, it's like it's like if every if every fiftieth tap to the space bar just didn't work or inserted an X instead, you know, like, <laughs> making fundamental input methods slightly less reliable than a hundred percent is, I think, a really big annoyance. I think everyone should use mice, but <laughs> besides the point. The fact is, if you're really good with a trackpad and you don't have tap-to-click enabled, it's very reliable. Like, it, it, you very rarely have, like, uh, unintended results from it or missed clicks or missed gestures. It, it, it's very reliable. With Force Touch, yes, they did something that's really cool technically, but on this fundamental level of reliability even if you can get over the feel issue which i honestly i still don't think it's as good even on the firm setting i've heard that uh el capitan makes it better in software i i have not been able to verify that yet but i I heard that's better i don't know uh but even with the click feel aside for now which i don't think is a small thing but put that aside for now the fact that it got even a little bit less reliable, the fact that it is occasionally misinterpreting what people want, and you aren't the first person to say that, Casey. I had that problem when I when I owned one for two days. Uh, I've heard many people <laughs> who had the same who still have the same problem with it, where it is a little bit less reliable. It is like you will occasionally have a misdrag or a misclick or something. That to me is unacceptable. I like why make it worse? Like because that is it's making it worse. Why take something that is so good? 
I don't know if it is making it. That's what I was getting at with asking about the habits. I don't know if it's really making it worse. It's making it worse for you and for people whose habits are trained on the old one because your fing- you will find your fingers doing things and acting in ways that were appropriate for the old device that are not appropriate for the new one. But I'm not entirely sure that if, you know, like ignore all of us and say this is the first time anyone ever used a trackpad. This is their first computer. They're 10 years old. They start on this thing. Is it worse for them? I'm this, that's one aspect of the other aspect that you talk about reliability of like, I don't want it missing clicks and stuff like that. That may be tied to our habits. But the other aspect of us, think of like the uh, the iPod uh, click wheel. Remember that thing with the spinning mm-hmm. wheel? Apple quickly got rid of the ring that actually turns and changed it into a ring that does not turn, but that you just slide your channel, your finger around in this channel. And people didn't like that either because it was like, well, yeah, maybe it was bad because that ring popped off all the time on the old one. But I like the fact that it actually moved. Now I'm swiping my sweaty finger across plastic that does not move. How is that better? Well, you know, it's just a reduction in moving parts. Apple loves to reduce moving parts. This is a reduction in moving parts, kind of, sort of, mostly. Is it? It is. I mean, it is because it's like the force sensors. There's a, a, not a crack that opens up that, like Casey said, fingernails can get into, food crumbs can get into. That you know, uh, setting aside the whole depth and battery thing, which is you know is a big motivator for this. Like it is one fewer moving part, and it is more uniform. It is like I said, the whole surface is equally tappable. Maybe it'll take a couple versions to figure out the feel and the, and stuff like that. And the reliability, I'm not, I don't know because I don't have one of these. I don't know if that's just because your fingers are used to it. I know that coming from a mouse trying to use any kind of trackpad, I felt like I was, you know, just completely unable to, like, I felt like there was a huge barrier between me and the cursor all of a sudden because I, I grew up with a mouse and not a trackpad. It took me a long time to even become vaguely competent with a trackpad. And even now, if I have to click and hold and drag something with a trackpad, like with a traditional one, I have one with actual physical buttons sitting behind me, so I use that one a lot. With the regular button, all of them I feel like are terrible. And the Force Touch trackpad, I agree with you, that doesn't feel as good to me. But I feel like I'm more reliable clicking and dragging. Again, I haven't used one for a long period of time. But anyway, I'm I'm willing to believe that uh, even though you dislike this thing strongly and it is worse for you. No, no, that, no, that's not what I said. I don't dislike it strongly. I just think it's worse. I know. Even though you, you, even though you think it's worse, I would say it's definitely worse for you so far. Even though you didn't have it very long time either, but I'm willing to believe that it is going to be better for people who aren't used to the old way, and I'm even willing to believe that it could actually be better for you three or four years from now when the mechanical ones are totally gone and you just kind of get used to it. So, put a mark in your calendar for three years to get from now, and I'll ask you how you're <laughs> feeling about Force Touch trackpads now. Okay, I'm, you know. But anyway, I like again. Apple is forward looking, and they're saying the same thing with like. Who's going to use these trackpads? Uh, I mean, you guys don't remember this, but you used to have trackballs down there with a button above and below the trackball, and you use the trackball either with your thumb and then with your other thumb on the on the top button, or you could use the track trackball with your finger with your thumb on the bottom button. Uh, some people will use a trackball. Some people like them, and they replaced it with, you know, codename Midas, the touchpad thing. People are like, whoa, whoa, what the hell happened to the trackball? This is worse. I was much better at controlling things. I never had any mistaps or swipes or whatever. The ball was easy to control. I could feel it moving back and forth. Eventually, we just all get used to it, and no one is like, this trackpad sucks. I wish I had a trackball, right? So I, I feel like this is one of those type of moves where it has the inevitability of fewer moving parts, that is very in line with what Apple does and, and what technology moves to in general, just because it allows you to make things thinner and lighter and there's fewer things that slide back and forth against each other. And I think it may be perfectly acceptable and possibly even better depending on the habits for new people. So I'm, I, I still say the jury's out on this thing. We're going to hear from all the trackball users, by the way. Yeah, we are. No one, rem- no one remembers the trackballs in power books. Some people still use them. 
like the the big external desktop ones they still make them oh yeah no that, that, that's the people who don't understand how a mouse works i, I know <laughs> it's like you turn it over the ball goes facing down guys <laughs> <laughs> so no, no one remembers mice with balls in them either i guess oh my god uh, i was an expert cleaning mouse balls let me tell you yeah yeah me too like get tweezers te- peel off the big like yeah it's awesome get it off on one piece yeah that, if if you're if you're lucky you would come off in one piece yeah you would have to scrape it ew it's so gross <laughs> oh my god this is so amazing um so yeah so in case you <laughs> thought we weren't going to get enough email let me make it better um trackpads are barbaric the only one true mobile pointing device is the track point period that is the deal you know, I, I kind of wish we still had track points like in Apple products because I, I think I agree with you because I, I, I had I had ThinkPads from eBay back forever ago uh, before I could get myself like a, a new laptop. I would get like old, terrible ThinkPads on eBay every couple of years uh, for like $300. <laughs> uh, so I, I had I had track points here and there briefly in my in my younger years and I liked them a lot. I really, really like them a lot, but I, I wonder if, you know, if, you know, the same way, like I thought the Sega Saturn had awesome graphics when it came out, uh, and then I saw it, you know, 10 years later and did not think that anymore. Uh, I wonder like, do, do track points still hold up yep. today? Yep. No, they, they never held up. It's like, it's like flying, flying the spaceship cursor pointer with a joystick. That's what you're doing with the trackpad. You are basically riding on top of the cursor, which is a spaceship that you are controlling on the screen with a joystick. <laughs> it is not direct manipulation. <laughs> Trackpads are better than the little track points. I know people like them, and they, they, they have one advantage, which is it allows you to keep your fingers on the keyboard. You just got to move your finger over between the F and the G, or whatever the hell the thing was in the keyboards, and use it over there and, and ignore the fact that it's cutting into your keycaps a little. Uh, and it's good. You keep everything in the same place. Like That's, that's its one advantage. Everything else about it sucks. Like, as in, how quickly can you move the cursor towards something that you want are interested in? Oh, ugh, no good. <laughs> so the thing about it is, um, if I'm really honest with myself, most of this is nostalgia. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, the track point on a ThinkPad was always, almost always red, if not always red. Um, they were also oftentimes put on Dells, among many other manufacturers. It's the little nubbin that's in between. I think it's actually the G, H, and B keys. I don't have one in front of me, but I believe that's right. And so you would push the little nubbin. It kind of was basically a little joystick. You would push the little nubbin, you know, forward and back and side to side. And there were mouse buttons immediately below the space bar. And that's where the mouse buttons were. And I would fly on that track point, And it was so much more accurate to me than I am on a trackpad, even after having a trackpad for the last, what, eight years or something like that, 10 years. Um, I still genuinely prefer a track point. The one place where a track point just completely falls down is multi-touch in terms of like swiping. So, for example, what do they call it now? Is it Expose now or is it Mission Control now? I feel like they're always changing the name. I've lost track. Mission Control as of a couple of years ago. Okay, so the Mission (laughs) Control thing where you can swipe between desktops, um, I use that constantly. And not being able to do that, uh, what is it, three-finger swipe? Um, Not being able to do that three-finger swipe would absolutely ruin me on a Mac. But anytime I'm on a desktop, uh, excuse me, anytime I'm on a PC, if if it's a PC that has a track point, that's immediately where I'm reaching. Um, Because I just think it's better and... 
I, I am still more accurate with it, even though I never use one anymore. But to be fair, I think a lot of that is nostalgia, and, and it's because it's what I grew up on, because my dad worked for IBM, and so I was always using old ThinkPads, just like Marco. And um, and so I've always, always, always used track points up until I started using Macs. Um, so yeah, so I still think the track point's the way to go. And John, you're entitled to your opinion, as wrong as it may be. Please don't email us. These are things you don't have to have opinions about. These things you can test. You can have just, you know, a series of targets that you have to get and, and measure time for an accuracy. And like, you can actually figure this stuff out for an individual person, for people in general, if you get enough testers, like we don't have to just, you know, in theory, this could be tested. Yeah. You could also test whether vinyl sounds good or not, but when have I ever cared about that? <laughs> also been done. You're right. That can't be tested and has been. So check. All right. Tra- the track point, I'm not sure about. By the way, have you ever seen the mouse with the track point in it? We had them. Like, a, think of where your think of where your scroll wheel is. That seems crazy to me because, like, you've got a mouse in your hand. <laughs> Some, sometimes people just like to have something to fiddle with their fingers. Ew. Anyway, I, hey, we at least we've been calling it the nubbin. We've been staying away from the various other names for this thing. That's yep. Yeah, we've we're, been we're very we're, good. We're doing well. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing I wanted to say is. Um, I happen to think that track points are terrible, but as, excuse me, not track points, uh, touchpads are terrible. um, But as touchpads go, the Apple touchpads are far and away leaps and bounds better than any other touchpad I've ever used. And I think, oh yeah. And I think the multi-touch has a lot to do with that. But to me, the biggest reason that's true is because of the sheer size of the touchpad. Because maybe it's different recently in newer PCs. I haven't used a terribly modern PC in a, in a year or two. But on PCs up until at least a couple of years ago, the trackpads were tiny. They were postage stamps compared to what you get on an Apple uh, on an Apple device. And that just made it impossible to me. It's like, have you ever seen someone use a mouse on a space that is nowhere near big enough for that mouse? Yeah, they used to sell, they would sell like mouse pads. They were like four inches by four inches. Right. Like, was that even a mouse pad? Yeah, it's just the word. And so all you hear is, the entire time they're using this, all you hear is... Because they're constantly picking up the damn mouse and putting it back on the table. It's the worst. <laughs> yeah. No, oh, I've seen, you ever seen them use it like at a point of sale and they don't have a place for the mouse? It's like wedged between like the monitor <laughs> and like the little thing. So they're literally using it with like, with like a half a centimeter of slop. And so like thump, 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 thump. Thump, 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 thump. They have to like yep. pick it up every three pixels they move the thing. Yep, yep, Sometimes yep. they're using it upside down. You ever see those people? No, that I've not seen. All right. That was a big thing back in the early days where people weren't familiar with mice and they would get one and you know whatever there's no clear way you're supposed to use it if you've never used one before so they would turn it around so that the wire is coming out sort of towards them and you know the mouse works fine like that it's like inverted y-axis in a video game right and they would press the button <laughs> either the single button or double with their palm the left or right side of their palm and some people just got what? used to using a mouse like that and that was just it that's like that's the way they're going to use the mouse for the rest of their life and if someone eventually would come up to them and say no no no, it goes around the other way and put your fingers over here and they'd be like oh well, I like it the other way. Like, you get used to an inverted Y, you get used to using the, the, the buttons with your palms, and that's it. And who's to say that's bad, really? I mean, you kind of run over the cord a little bit, but, you know, it's, it's all what you get used to. Some people are left-handed, too. Can you believe that? <laughs> now, are you sure those weren't just trackball users that you were misinterpreting as mouse users? No, I've seen this. I've seen this in real life multiple times, widely separated geographically and over periods of time, people who use the mouse upside down. I've never seen that. Well, I'm, I'm with you, Casey. I, I would rather use a, a Force Touch trackpad on a MacBook One set to the squishiest setting 
then use the best PC trackpad available. Oh, yeah. I think it's not just the size, too. It's also, I don't know if they're not made of glass because it's too expensive, but they're always made out of, like, (laughs) sometimes it's textured plastic or some other kind of plastic that feels bad or, like, ends up getting, like, bubbles or wrinkles in it. It just just feels like the cheapest thing you've ever felt in your life compared to, like, Apple has traveled that same trajectory. The original codename Midas trackpad on the first uh, PowerBook was plasticky and garbagey and terrible. That's what Windows trackpads are like now. Apple slowly progressed, making its trackpads. But the Midas, the Midas trackpad was really tiny. It was like it's like the size of the two combined mouse buttons on my mouse. And Apple just kept making them bigger and bigger and bigger, and making the button part smaller and smaller, and then mo- removing the button part and making it glass. And PC manufacturers said, "You know what? We can just slap a piece of plastic on here with some cheap sensor underneath it. That's fine." <laughs> Fair enough. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say because I don't think I've ticked off enough people yet this evening. Um, I use tap to click, and I just wanted to throw it out there. Oh, I don't have a problem with it. I don't see why everyone's so worked up about it. I don't see what the issue is. I don't typically click by way of tapping, but I can go either way. I can swing either way, and I'm okay with that. Hey, do you Are you just using tap to click now when you, with a new thing, or have you always used no, it? No, always. Well, then you have no reason to ever complain about missed clicks or accidental clicks, because right. you're, you're just doing this to yourself. Yeah, you, you deserve any unreliability in tapping that you get. I think, you know, see, I think tap to click, like, I'm not super anti tap to click. Here's what I think about tap to click. If you are a tap to click wizard, I think it's better. Like, I feel like it's the, <laughs> it's the expert mode because you don't have to apply a lot of pressure. Like, if you have somehow trained yourself to magically dance your fingers across a surface and you can walk that, that line between pre- putting your finger down into the thing and tapping to click, it is more efficient because you don't have to press hard, right? I know I can't do it. I know when I enable it, I get misclicks all the time. And I try to do it. I would like to be a tap-to-click wizard, but I'm just not, right? And almost everyone else I've ever seen, they accidentally tap-to-click too. And they're just they're just willing to accept the error rate as just the cost of doing business. I mean, my own mother uses it because it's just more comfortable. You don't have to press as hard. There is sort of a, a luxury and a kind of a higher level of user interface. Like it's one step removed from just waving your hands in front of something, a uh, minority report style or uh, what the hell is that thing called? Uh, the track pointy thing. Remember that? I actually used it. I, uh, I attached it to my computer. It was cool. The thing where you can like put your hand over this little bar and you see like these five points for your five fingertips and move them around. What? What? Let me go look at my application folder. You guys all remember it. Uh, well, anyway, uh, I, so I actually, I, one of the reasons why I, I think I resist tap to click is because i secretly want to be a tap to click wizard i i would love it if i was really good at it and really used to it because it does seem like it would be superior if it was perfect and it's silent and there's lots of times like if i'm using a laptop in bed trying to get some work done before going to sleep or something uh like there's lots of times or like even while podcasting i would love to you know get like a magic trackpad and be able to like tap to click on it comfortably and there and then have silent mousing while podcasting, you know, stuff like that. Like I would love that, but I just I've tried it here and there for like a couple of days at a time, and I just could never get into it. And, and it's not that it's not reliable; it has a threshold. This is a tap, and this is not a tap, right? It's just that you can't walk that line. Very often, you will find your fingers hitting the pad with enough force to go over that threshold, and you didn't mean to, and you don't have control of that threshold really either. Um, so I think it is, you know, as reliable as a button. It's like if you press with this amount of force, I consider it a click. If you press with anything less for that, I don't. But you find your fingers hitting the thing and causing taps when you didn't want to. By the way, the name of that thing was called Leap Motion. Don't you remember it? Leap Motion? 
I feel like I've heard that name. Go click the link I just put in the chat room and in the show notes. You'll remember it. Uh, I, I had one of them. I tried it out when the, the SDK was in like beta or whatever. It was really neat and cool and fun to use in a demo. I'm not sure how you could use it to control any piece of software, but uh, it was a cool tech demo. I have never heard of or seen this in my life. You had to have. We had it in like the show notes, I think, for this show at some point. What? I mean, it's po- that's possible. I don't have that good of a memory, but I don't think I've ever seen this uh, before. Could have been a different show. I'm on a lot of podcasts. Anyway, uh, t- <laughs> take, a lo- take a look at the videos. Uh, this is a real thing. And the demos, like, you can get this thing, stick it in front of your Mac, and do the things they show in the demo, and it works like it shows in the demo. What I'm just not sure about is, like, okay, can I? Sh- is it useful for me to use to control my mouse pointer? Probably not. Is it useful for gaming? Maybe. Maybe someone can make a cool game with it. There is a lot of noise and kind of fuzz in the thing, and there's a lot of freedom of where you can put your limbs in front of it, so there's the potential to be sort of miscalibrated and off, but uh, sure is an interesting piece of technology. Our second sponsor this week is Harry's. Go to harrys.com and use the promo code ATP to save $5 off your first purchase. Harry's offers high-quality razors and blades for a fraction of the price of the big razor brands. They make their own blades from their own factory, which is an old blade factory in Germany that they actually liked so much that they bought it. These are high-quality, high-performing German blades crafted by shaving experts. This gives you a better shave that respects your face and your wallet. Now, Harry's offers factory direct pricing at a fraction of the big brand prices. Harry's blades usually are about half the price, sometimes even less if you buy them in bulk. Uh, plus, you don't have to wait around for some guy to unlock you know, the case at the drugstore and everything. They ship them directly to your door. The starter sets are an amazing deal. Now, for 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream or gel, your choice, and three razor blade cartridges. Now, this is, a lot of people might think this is like double-edged safety razors or anything like that. Uh, it's not. Th- these are cartridge razors very similar to like the Gillette uh, Fusion, you know, like the, the kind of five blade cartridges. Uh, very, very similar to those in quality. Uh, way better looking handles, way, uh, you know, very similar shave quality, everything like that, but just done nicer and at about half the price. So, uh, for instance, the the Harry's blades are about two dollars each or less. An eight pack is fifteen bucks. A sixteen pack is twenty five bucks. Uh, if you compare that to, uh, say, the Gillette Fusion, which I, I would say is the most direct uh, competitor to it and certainly the most comparable, twelve pack for a little over forty bucks. Uh, twelve Harry's blades are twenty bucks, half the price. Uh, really, it, it's it, it's such a great value for Harry's. You really do get like the same shave quality as a Fusion at half the price. And I, I say this having used Fusions for years and now having used Harry's, they, it really is very, very similar. Uh, half the price. Can't beat that. And they also have great packaging, great, nice, heavy handles, classy designs. And this is something you can't really get anywhere else. You look around at other other shaving handles, other razor handles, and and everything like that, and it's it looks like Android commercials. Like it, it just looks <laughs> it looks like it's not designed for people with good taste. No offense, Android people, but your commercials are really bad. Uh, whereas Harry's blades are really designed with like kind of like a modern but kind of retro throwback look, almost like a Mad Men kind of style. Uh, very like classy, modern look. Uh, we've also heard from both men and women that they love Harry's Blades. This is not just for men. It is marketed towards men. We know that. We've talked to them about that. But uh, a lot of women buy these, and uh, they're very satisfied with them from what we hear. So with Harry's, you get the, the convenience and ease of ordering online, high-quality blades, 
great handle and shaving cream, and excellent customer service if you ever need it, at only half the price of the big brands. Get started today with a set that includes a handle, three blades, and shaving cream for just 15 bucks, including free shipping right to your door. Go to harrys.com and use the promo code ATP to save another 5 bucks off your first purchase. So harrys.com, promo code ATP for 5 bucks off your first purchase. Thanks a lot to Harry's for sponsoring the show once again. All right. So, Marco, uh, tell us about what you think is happening with the iPhone 6C. Is this that interesting? So, I, I don't know. Um, so, there's been all the... Everyone's speculating that, you know, that we've had the iPhone 5C, which was like the redone iPhone 5 with the plastic case and everything. Uh, and, you know, everyone's now saying, well, we hope this fall when the new iPhones come out, there's going to be a 6C. And everyone's kind of expecting it as if it's fact. Like, oh, yeah, there's going to be a 6C. They're going to redo the internals and everything, and it'll be... The sixes guts in a in a plastic four inch uh, inexpensive phone. Um, I person I said on Twitter earlier this week I don't see that happening at all uh, because the simple reason is that we always for the last many years now we have seen pretty pretty solid healthy amounts of parts leaks uh, in the late summer leading up to the fall iPhone releases because the fact is the the supply chain for making millions and millions of iPhones to be bought all at once like on day 1 uh this ju- like you it is it is very unrealistic to expect that they would have a brand new model of iPhone even if it isn't the top of the line one that they would have a brand new model using a new casing and new parts and those parts wouldn't be leaking at all yet it it is possible it i just think it's unlikely and so i think if there was going to be a 6C there would be some changes to the casing, certainly. E- even if it looked kind of the same, there's always minor variation. You know, they could, whenever there's like an S model, uh, to, you know, where like the case stays a bit basically the same, but there's like new guts. The the parts are actually different enough, even on the casing, that those always leak. And those, in fact, have leaked already for uh, what is called, in quotes, the iPhone 6S, uh, presumably like the main iPhone 6 update for this fall. Uh, we are like there have already been leaked parts for that. Uh, there was a back case, there was a screen. Uh, so we have seen nothing else though. There we haven't even seen the 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 6s plus parts leaks yet. I assume there will be one because it would be weird if there wasn't. But you know, so all we've seen so far is the 6s parts. I would assume based on that then that we're not going to see any new, totally new looking external cases, and that we're probably not even going to see an iPhone five or an iPhone 6c. I think the iPhone 5c falls out of the lineup or replaces the 4S, which is still for sale today in some markets, right? Isn't that like in like some like India and China markets, isn't that still for sale, the 4S? I think so. I don't know. I mean, I remember when they were saying they were keeping it, but only in certain regions, but I don't know how long. Right. So I, I assume, I think it's probably safe to assume that the that everything basically moves down a step. Uh, so you have the 5C moving into that spot. In in the U.S. and in a lot of like, you know, rich countries, basically, uh, you have the cheapest phone becoming the 5S, uh, and then you have the old 6 and 6 Plus, maybe. At least the old 6, maybe the 6 Plus, who knows. And then the new 6S and 6S Plus. I think that's the lineup. And I don't think there's... It, it doesn't seem like it's that hard to predict. Uh, and you know maybe there's going to be a new you know rose gold color, people are speculating, who knows. But I don't think we're going to see a new low-end model. I think that's a shame, though, because I think the 5C had a lot of really good attributes. So obviously, the guts are now outdated or whatever. And if you're going to keep a phone like that on the in the lineup you'd have to uh change the innards but that's what we're talking about like the, the new ipod touch like oh an a8 in a, in a 5c size case like 
you could make that into a replacement 5C type phone, which would be the old four inch screen. Uh, the things that I was going for it for the people you can ask someone who owns them. Why did you get this? I, we all know somebody who is like an iOS developer or an otherwise tech nerd who usually gets the best, fanciest phone, but decided to get a 5C. What's so great about the 5C? Number one comes in colors. People like colors. Just people like them. You want to have a phone with a white back or a yellow back or whatever? These are your choices, or you can just get a case and slap it on them. People like things that come in colors. The iPods have taught us anything. Number two, it's super comfortable. Nice curved back like the plastic. The people who have them and like them say one of the reasons they like it is it feels, especially compared to the stupid 5 and 5S with the little sharp chamfered edge crap, like not as comfortable in your hand. Um, And those two things may sound stupid. It's like, wh- who cares? Whatever. How comfortable it is, just a big rectangle with a screen, what color it is. Those things matter, especially in product lines. And I think that, uh, you know, maybe it didn't sell up to their expectations. Maybe they didn't think it was worth it. Maybe it's better to just keep using the tooling from the other things. I'm not saying it has to be in, in the 5C thing. I just think those are things that Apple should bring to its phones. And they are kind of like giving, you know, over time, there have been more and more variations in, in all the products, even their laptops at this point, you can get in gold and space gray and stuff, right? Expanding the repertoire of things you can buy. And if Apple wants to segment its line, you can always, they kind of do like, it used to be like aluminum was for the expensive ones and then plastic for the cheaper ones. And they went all aluminum and, and you could have a more kind of refined line of colors with space gray and gold and, and black or whatever for the fancy high-end phones. And then as you go middle or lower, have them come in 700 different colors, right? You know, have different colors change every year. And uh, I think, Marco, on Twitter, you were making fun of the little case with the holes in it with mixing and matching things. Like, that's silly. They're overpriced. People like to do stuff like that. Maybe that particular design was ugly and didn't sell well. Um, but I really, really think that uh, Apple should bring back at some point into its lineup of phones a selection of colors and a more comfortable thing to hold. Uh, and if it's not going to be this generation, then hopefully like whenever they do the big revision for the seven or whatever the hell they're going to call it. Well, but I mean, and first of all, I, I should point out that I'm a total hypocrite because as I, as I'm sitting there saying who the heck ever bought multiple holy cases for their iPhone five C's. I also own three Apple watch bands, but anyway, I'm so angry that I didn't get to point that out. And you <laughs> thought of it. Before. <sighs> Sorry. Uh, but also, you know, if you look at the direction Apple's going with their product designs, all of the laptops now are metal. They've been that way for a long time. They just don't use that as a differentiator anymore. They use other things. Uh, all the iPads are metal. Plastic never reached the iPad line. Um, if you look at the iPhone line, uh, the iPhone 6 is holdable and comfortable for nobody. <laughs> <laughs> it's more comfortable than the 5, other than it slipping out of your hand. Don't you feel like the edges, at least, the rounded edges, are more comfortable? Oh, yes, they are much more comfortable for as long as they're in your hand and they fall out. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying, like, that's, I know what you're getting at. Like, they're going for all metal, but I think, like, metal is a poor fit for all of your phones. It may be a poor fit for any of your phones. Just look at how they're, they're, they've struggled with, like, the antenna lines and everything. Like, Oh, sure. No, but I, I, I agree with you. However, I'm just saying, realistically, what they're doing it sure does seem, and, and I, I heard from, back when I was first complaining about the iPhone 6 design, which now seems like forever ago, uh, I heard from a couple of Apple people who were kind of coyly suggesting, well, what if the rationale was instead, you know, they, they would never actually say this is why we did it, but but the, the, the coyly suggested rationale was basically your naked robotic core theory of like, we, uh, we will just make the, the thinnest, lightest phone, it, the smallest, thinnest, lightest thing, and then you can 
customize it with cases to give it either more battery life <clears throat> or uh, or a better feel. And so, and I did, you know, with with the iPhone six. This is the first phone that I'm constantly using a case on because I, it, I I'm using Apple's leather case because I just needed some more friction. But and it is a valid product strategy. Like I'm not even saying that's the wrong thing to do because if if faced with this option, this is a, a great way to go because you're like. Do whatever you want with the case. We'll make a whole bunch of really nice cases. You can buy a bunch of third-party cases when you drop your phone, when you ding it, when something spills on it, when you scratch it. Get a new case because all that damage is happening to the case, which if you buy from Apple is $70 for a thin piece of leather (laughs) stuck to plastic. But let's ignore that for now and just say, look, (laughs) this is a good plan. Naked Robotic Core is a a viable, good strategy. Well, see, I disagree with you there. All right. So what part of that don't you like? The problem is that if you let's say you have the naked robotic, you know, fish phone in the middle there with that feels like nothing and this is bar soap. Okay. Uh that phone with let's say you want a little bit more battery life. So you buy a battery case. A battery case attached to the phone is always going to be bigger and worse than just building that in to begin with. I agree with you for the battery. I'm thinking only for fashion and protection. Like for what color do you want it in and do you want something to be grippier or, or soak up nicks or whatever battery? You're right because you're, I mean, because you're forced to have two layers there and then all the, all the stuff like, although people still do it, right? And I, I still think it becomes a viable thing, but it, but it's inefficient. Like I agree with you that basically the, the trade-off that Apple makes uh, in its phone line between thinness and battery life, we talked about this a million times, there is definitely a place in the lineup for, for a phone that Apple sells that makes a different trade-off. Uh, oh, and by the way, if your most important thing is you need really good battery life, we sell you one that is way thicker than our other ones, you know, a millimeter or whatever the hell we think way thicker is these days, um, <laughs> that gives you more battery. And at this point, like the 6 Plus is kind of that model just because it's got the bigger battery. But yeah. Apple just does not make, does not offer a phone that's like that. So they force you to get these big humpback, speaking of humps on things, these big humpback things that you're right. You have to have a layer of plastic of metal, the battery, another layer of plastic of metal, then a connector thing. And then it just, it makes your phone way bigger than it would be if they built it in. But for the color and protection stuff, I think Naked Robotic Core is a reasonably viable strategy, but also so is selling plastic phones that are comfortable and come in a bunch of colors. Well, but so so going back to the to the feel and protection issue though, I would say that selling a plastic phone and selling thicker metal phones that is a better strategy than selling all thin bar soap phones and letting you put cases on afterwards. Because the fact is, people are always going to put cases on if they want a case. Like, anybody who wants extra protection for their phone, for dropping and everything, they're, they're going to use a case no matter what shape or material the phone is. doesn't matter. For people who don't want to put cases on their phone, you know, th- and there's, I think, a lot of those people, and I think a lot of Apple people. So I, I just took out my, I got my 5S here. And my 5S with no case, which is how I used it because it's very comfortable for me with no case, is thinner and lighter than my iPhone 6 with the big leather case on it. The argument of like the battery being better if it's built in, that applies also to the feel of the phone. So I'm I'm both agreeing with your earlier point and disagreeing with your most recent point, where I, I think that <laughs> like the Nick Robotic Core strategy falls over here because I think you're better off just making phones to begin with that can be used without cases and have good battery life if you want those. And if you want even more battery life, and if you want an even bigger, grippier, more protective case, those are options you can add on as well. People always will do that. But the basic phone, I think, needs to be better than what we got with the 6. I See, I think that all of the phones have been pretty darn slippery. 
right? Uh, I, that that is not as if the the, the well, six never, is. By so, the way, so, you never actually owned any of the other ones. Well, I, my wife had a four S and a five, uh, and with and without the case. And you know, like I've I've they've been around, and of course I felt other people once. Like you're right that the six is slipperier. A lot of that has to do with the size change. Like that's why your five and five S are lighter because they're smaller phones, right? Sure. Um, but. I, I always like grippy phones. Like I always like a case that's like silicone or something like that and, and a leather one. I need that grippiness. You can't build in that grippiness because by na- by the nature of that grippiness, it wears out, it scratches, it dents, it peels away, it is subject to abrasions. You just can't build that into the phone. So if you're going to make the phone out of something, it has to be something that's smooth and hard and shiny, whether it's plastic or metal, because you can't, like it would be terrible to make it, make a phone that you buy that basically like the whole back of it is leather. Right, but I like the feel of something that is that is backed by leather, so it has to be a removable case for that material. What you're saying is like the 4s with a glass back or whatever, or the five with the metal thing. Like, make it of a sturdy material that doesn't scratch and doesn't wear out and isn't really subject to abrasions, but also isn't slippery. And that is really difficult to do. So I feel like if you're either going to go naked robotic core for metal, or you're going to go non-metal material that is nevertheless pretty hard. Uh, you're never going to be able to, you shouldn't, I think, make a phone that has like integrated rubber grips or integrated silicone things because you're just asking for the phone to get dinged up and ugly and then it's like, oh, I can't take this off. It's not a case. It's part of the phone. God, this 5S feels great. Uh, speaking of the fi- uh, 5S on Twitter, I forget so who was saying it on Twitter. Maybe it was the tipster. Maybe it was someone else talking about how Apple was having difficult with that, with the 5 and the 5S. It was it was the 5 only. Yeah, because like, I, I was... I was I was asking, like, you know, with the 5C, whether it was a failure and, and you know, what the reason was for, like, it, it apparently got better margins. And my, my theory, my question was, like, would would continuing to make the 5 with just, just the advances in time and mass production, would they have had similar margins? Like, was it really that much worth it? And the answer apparently was yes, because on the 5, because remember, the 5 and the 5S, the the black color was different between the two. The 5 had, had a very, very dark uh, black color i think it was called space black, whatever it was called um the 5s got lighter and called it space gray but anyway the the black finish on the five chipped and flaked off really really easily and most of the time like i like on my five i i saw this most of the time it would show up on the on the edges the chamfered edges where you'd you'd, you'd see the bright colored aluminum shining through the like the black finish where it had like chipped off and everything um, so apparently that was such a big problem for Apple and getting yields on that and everything. Uh, the tipster said that, uh, that that was one of the biggest reasons that they switched to the plastic for the 5C rather than continuing to make those black cases as the 5 aged and went down the lineup. Because any phone they make where they don't do a 5C and replace it, which has been every other one, uh, these are made for like, what, four years? They're made for a long time. It isn't just the year they're the newest phone. So if there was an issue of like this thing is proving to not age well or have too low manufacturing yields, it it might be worth it for them to switch out the entire casing and redesign the whole thing. And and so that was clearly a contributing factor, uh, very likely to the five C's existence. But we don't have that now. Well, they talk about yields. What they're basically talking about, and we kind of can remember back to the uh, what was it, the white backed, uh, the you know the four four S series, the white ones. Remember, like where they're talking about the yields. What they're talking about is they build this phone. Like it goes down the manufacturing line. At some point in the manufacturing process, there's a random sampling of things, and you look at them and say, Do, "Does this pass our quality standards? And what are our standards? Can it not have any nicks? Can it, have, it has to be uniform color? Can you know whatever their standards are? And Apple standards are pretty darn high in terms of." It has to basically be perfect looking to the naked eye and maybe even with magnifying things. 
the ones that aren't perfect, it's like rejected. Like this one came off the line. It's a, it's an iPhone 5. It's black all over except for this one little part here where a flake came off and it's shiny. Reject it. And every time you do that, it costs you money because you spent all this time manufacturing this phone and now it didn't pass QA uh, and you don't get to sell that as a phone. You, it's got to, all the parts have to be recycled back and you start over and try again. So that's what we're talking about when we're talking about yields for these things. It's all down to what your standards are. And I think what uh, your conversation on Twitter was uh, one of the things that was offered was that the way Apple dealt with this yield problem eventually was they started lowering their standards a little bit just to like to not have not to be rejecting what I don't know what the percentages are. And again, this is all speculative rumor, blah, blah, blah. We don't know this is all true. But these are all things that sound plausible because we know for a fact that all manufacturing have some sort of quality control process. And we know based on what Apple sells that their quality control processes must be pretty tight because every time you open up one of those Apple boxes and look at that thing under a jeweler's loop, it's pretty darn. I mean, look at the freaking watch. Like it's pretty amazing what they do on a massive scale. Um, and it doesn't take much to throw that off to say, now this is costing us big bucks because if our yield goes off by just some small percentage or fraction of a percentage, uh, that's that's a big deal to us. But setting all of that aside, colors are cool and the 5C is really comfortable. I'm still a big fan of, of that idea of a phone, if not that specific phone, because now the innards are all old. Yeah, it's funny because on a daily basis, I typically have my hands on three different generations of iPhone. I have a six. I have it in a leather case. Um, I've used cases since, shoot, I think I had one on my 4S. I did not have one on my 3GS, if memory serves. Um, and I had one on my 5S. Um, so I am a case kind of guy. Um, that being said, Marco, I completely agree with you that even if I wasn't into cases for my phones, um, for the six, I would absolutely have had to put one on because I do agree that it is slippier than um, than any other iPhone I've, I've owned. But anyway, on a daily basis, I will typically have my six in my hand at some point. I'll have Aaron's 5S in my hand at some point. That's in the Apple leather case, just like mine is. Um, and we use my old 3GS as a white noise machine for Declan when he's sleeping. And so I'll typically pick that up to turn on the white noise. <laughs> my 3GS was a You Look Nice Today on loop player for Adam while he was sleeping when he was a baby. <laughs> yep. See? Exactly. Um, so because of that, I I feel like I've, I have a pretty good span of, of several different models. And to my hand, the 5S is far and away the most comfortable. I agree with you, John, that the 5C is actually more comfortable, but we don't have one in the house. Um, so if I were f- f- just truly for comfort, if I were to pick a new iPhone tomorrow, it would be a per- my, my ideal iPhone tomorrow is the guts of a quote unquote 6S in the case of a 5S. That's if you have to hold it, but what if you have to start actually looking at the screen? Completely agree. In that case, <laughs> I have to have a 6 I still think the 6 Plus is a little bit freakishly large, but maybe if I had one, I would change my tune. What's interesting, so I know this is very, very unlikely. It's almost certain not to happen in this revision, and it's even very unlikely for the iPhone 7, uh, I think, or for any iPhone just because of the nature. But what I would love is if the uh, the DLC space black watch finish was available on an iPhone. And I, I, I don't know enough about the materials to say it would probably have to be made of stainless steel. I don't, I don't know if this could bond to aluminum in the correct way. Uh, but So obviously this is a massive stretch of the imagination. But uh, if you could do it, if you could have the stainless steel DLC coating from the Space Black watch on a phone uh, somehow, whether it's made from steel or not, don't care. Uh, if you could do that, that I think would be perfect because 
although it's probably going to be heavier, unfortunately, but uh, but that would be great because the, the space black coating is extremely durable. It looks great. It is very dark, but it looks great. And it kind of feels like it's almost like a wrap, wrapped in vinyl kind of feeling. It does not feel like slippery metal. It, it, it is a little bit tackier. It's a little bit more friction. It almost feels like plastic. Yeah. That would be amazing. I completely agree. Or they could make it out of plastic. <laughs> it almost feels like plastic. We have that. We can do that. It's plastic. Make it kind of like a not so shiny kind of matte finish, really hard plastic. It could be unapologetically plastic. Someone said that once. Oh, God. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so probably not going to happen because of the materials and cost involved. But And wait, you called that. Wait, like, why not make it out of what is that, that big cylinder you have? The Tungsten. Uh, yeah. Yeah, make a tungsten phone. The very small cylinder I have that's heavier than the MacBook One. Good grief. All right. I do have some uh, questions about um, upgrade cycles and some other things, but anything else about the hardware and what may or may not happen in a couple of months? Actually, next month, in theory. Marco had some bold predictions about uh, flash storage capacity, too. Oh, this is boring. Yeah. Well, you you make these predictions on Twitter, like, I totally think this is going to be it, but it comes time to the podcast, you're like, yeah, maybe not. (laughs) Either you you think this is going to be it or you don't, because I'm not ready to make these predictions, but you seem very sure. Well, what happens is I, I make these predictions on Twitter, and then between the time I make these predictions on Twitter and now when we record the podcast, I've had hundreds of people telling me I'm an idiot and I'm wrong. So then I, I introduce some self-doubt. But my theory here is I don't think that we're, that we're going to lose the 16, 64, 128 split on the high-end models now. I think that's, that's going to be here for at least one more year. Uh, so 16 gigs, we're going to keep going on that. Uh, and then I just think, you know, everything else, like the like the the uh, the existing six, and if the six plus stays, which I actually predict the, the existing six plus won't stay in the lineup, but it doesn't. That's not that important. I'm guessing that it does basically what it did this past year, where the the six that we have today moves down a slot, becomes available in sixteen and maybe thirty two, because right now right now the uh, the five S is available in sixteen and thirty two. Uh, so maybe they would do that again. And then the existing 5S that we have today is 16 only. And then the, uh, what's below that? No, that's just, the, well, yeah, the 5C. The 5C right now is only 8, right? I think that's right. So, God, I hope the 5S doesn't go to 8. Jeez, they, they got to stop doing that. Oh, nothing's going to 8, please. Uh, I, I'm still holding out hope for a 32. I, I would love if the base was 32 for the new 6S or whatever we're calling that yep. thing, but uh, I I don't see it happening, unfortunately. Yeah, some, someone won an argument and be like, you don't need that anymore. App thinning, app slicing. Yeah, I mean, if you look at like you know the, the direction that, that they're taking with so many iOS 9 uh, app features and OS features, uh, you know, part of that, obviously, is that they have a lot of phones out there already in the installed base that have 16 or even 8 gigs of, of space, which is really unfortunate and really tight and really stingy. Uh, they they have a lot of phones out there that, that have those capacities already, and they're gonna they want all of those to be able to upgrade to iOS nine. Uh, so that that that's a problem that they that they were trying to solve. But if you look at all these like app thinning and the various resource things they're doing, all this stuff, they're, and they're they're also promoting app thinning very heavily. They sent out a bulk email about it today, encouraging developers to use it, and you can now test with internal testers, which are useless. Um, all this stuff. So they're clearly. They are clearly laying the foundation for a world in which tiny capacity iOS devices continue to exist, basically. 
I know. And I, I feel like, you know, there's a reason for them to do all that. Because like you said, all existing devices, they're kind of righting a wrong that already exists. But I, if, I fear someone also used that to explain why we have to continue making 16 gig devices in this next round and why we don't have to make a 32. Totally agreed. Wish I could have been there and said, no. Well, from from what I've heard from from people here and there, uh, what I've heard, which has no credibility whatsoever, is that it is very, very hard to convince the people at Apple who matter like about things like this, to convince them to spend the extra couple of bucks on the bill of materials to get the bigger RAM chip or to get the bigger flash memory I, chip. I believe it. I, I mean, we see the evidence of it. Exactly. Like we see, and, and there are some trade-offs too. Like, you know, with RAM, RAM uses battery life. So I, like, you know, there are some trade-offs there, but a lot of these things just come down to making sure they have very, very healthy margins and, and other things like that. Right. And and just, and just time marches on. It's like, all right, I understand that you have reasons for it, but eventually, you know, you gotta, and it's like, they're just kicking and streaming, dragging their feet. And it's like, even bumping the capacity is like, we bump the capacity, but can we cut out 32? and make keep 16 yeah let's do that that'll that will make me feel better for the fact that i gave you the larger capacities and we put two gigs of ram in the ipad 3 can i just can i get rid of the 32 and keep the 16s Ooh, money 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 it's like ah like i just wish i could convince these people of the of the long-term uh downsides like oh look at our customer set what long-term downsides are you talking about it's totally (laughs) invisible to us i agree that it's probably invisible to them but we all know from seeing the experiences like that, that it's like tiny little nicks of doubt and damage for the person who can't like can't upgrade because their phone is full it's like oh we'll fix that in software with the next version can't fit all their stuff on it and like well we'll we'll figure out we'll we'll more gracefully handle when you run out of storage like all these things are good to do but another thing you can do is stop selling 16 gig phones that's another thing you can do and eventually (laughs) you have to eventually you have to like you have to eventually stop selling eights you're gonna eventually like they don't want to believe that it's like it'll be 16 forever like yeah, you know, I don't want to have to use my argument again, which doesn't have a name that we've agreed upon, but I had to say like 2075, 16 gig iPhones. It's fine. We did app thinning like some you got to upgrade eventually people. And it's just a matter of arguing over what year it's going to be. And I feel like the year I want it to be is like always two to three years different than the year Apple wants it to be. So we should. So what kind of time scale would we need to, to get that? Uh, you just need them to agree that, that it's going to happen uh, and then make them pick which year it's going to happen in. Yeah. You agree with me that 16 gigs will go away. What year will that happen? Well, not this year for sure. Okay, we've narrowed it down. Not this year. Will it happen next year? Mm, not next year, but ask me again <laughs> next year. Will it happen the year after that? And you just keep going. And then eventually you're 75 years out and like, look, we're all dead now. And you still think it'll be 16 gig phones. I'm like, I just, I just can't spare the margins. <laughs> just can't do it yeah well because you know if you think about like you know the iphone f- for, from apple's financials point of view from you know from the stock and and from you know their their financial performance and everything the iphone is their most important product by a long shot and anything that drives up the average selling price of iphones is a pretty big deal to them uh it, it's it's a huge deal for for their money it's a huge deal for for tim cook's uh evaluation like by the market and the press and maybe the board who knows but, but that's not how they operate though because you know how they could save a lot of money use crappier materials and don't be so obsessed with the stupid chamfered edges but those people <laughs> the people who want that stuff to be perfect they win the arguments they say well sure yes we could do this much more cheaply 
And we wouldn't have all these QA problems. And by the way, the ADP tipster wants us to know they didn't actually decrease their standards. What they did was increase their standards earlier in their production process to not let those cases end up being incompleted phones or whatever. But anyway, um, <laughs> those people win their arguments because you could save tons of money. You'd be a PC manufacturer, make all your trackpads out of plastic. It's way cheaper. Look at those huge margins. But they don't do that. Why? Because they want to make the best product they can. And I feel like at this point, selling phones for 100 or $200 with or does even you can even a three hundred dollar one with sixteen gigs of flash storage is making your products worse for people in a way that is avoidable with not too much you know wouldn't hurt your margins that much in the same way like if you need a trade off maybe find a way to make it out of cheaper easier to make I think they did that I think the six plus is e- it's easier to manufacture this curved piece of aluminum than it was to manufacture the 5 and the 5S with the little chamfered edges. It seems like, I don't know anything about manufacturing, but it seems to me that this one must be cheaper to manufacture. Hey, so hey, use some of that money that you saved making a, a easier to manufacture case that's easier to get to pass QA, put that into maybe having a 32 gig model somewhere in your lineup and maybe not selling the 16 at the top of the line. But it's it's not about saving the you know five or ten bucks or whatever the cost is of the flash chip in you know going from sixteen to thirty two. It's about the people who who upgrade who pay the extra hundred dollars to go from sixteen to sixty four, who wouldn't have done that if the base model was thirty two. I, I, yeah, you're right. I know it, it comes out the money. Like basically, what it's down to is like, well, they're really sensitive to money. This is a big product line. Any small change in a device that sells in this volume for this amount of money. It, adds up to big numbers and you're right if it's the anchoring it's like well i don't want a 16 and so my only other choice is 64 and they can charge more for 64 but 64 is so much bigger than 16 like all that stuff is all true it's just like you know those type of pricing games and stuff like you can play those but the worst thing you can do is put a product into the hands of people that is going to give them a less satisfactory experience that will just get worse over time uh, that will make them have bad feelings about you or your products Oh, I agree, but Apple has always done that. They've always had like you know very low RAM configurations on like the base model laptops and stuff like that. They came out of that. I felt like they got over that. Like they, they it used to, it was a really dark time where like you know your new uh, you know three thousand dollar Mac comes standard with an obscenely small amount of RAM. It might as well be empty. Don't even try to <laughs> use, don't even try to use it in this configuration. And by the way, if you don't buy your RAMs from us, it voids the warranty. Like those are the bad old days. I felt like they came out of that. Uh, especially when they started soldering RAM on the board, that's one of the best things that happened to them RAM-wise because they were forced to use a sane amount. Right. Because if there was going to be, you know, it's a pro laptop, but we put soldered on the board, four gigs. No, and you can't expand it. It's like So they were forced to pick sane numbers there. I think that was a plus. The Flash and the iPhones is the, their new area of backsliding. They just feel like they can get away with it for just way too long. Well, and they, they obviously can get away with it. I know, but there's, there, there are it, it's ramifications. How many podcasts am I going to say that on now? Uh, <laughs> what is the fallout? I'll even give them the, this current lineup that we've all got, you know, in our hands. I'll even give them that sixteen. Fine, you get a pass on that one. But this year, I really, really, really hope in the top of the line product it doesn't even go down to sixteen, and that there's definitely a thirty-two. You want to bet? I would not bet against it because I, I think it's about at least a 50-50 chance that you're right and that it's going to go down to 16. But I just I just really, you know, if only just because, like, that's the phones that they're making. Like, I, I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet you a 16-gig SD card that this, <laughs> that the base model stays 16. No, I, I, I would not take that bet. I just I feel like it's, it's, a, it's a coin toss. So, Our final sponsor this week is Hover. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names. And you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to Hover.com and using the code InfiniteTimeScale at checkout. 
Nice. Now, when you have a great idea for a domain, you want to secure it right away. You want something catchy and memorable to represent your project. Hover gives you exactly what you need to find the perfect domain name for your idea. You can get a great name, then you can get started actually working on your project and move on to the next thing on your your to-do list. Personally, for me, I always... The very first thing I do when I start a new project is pick a name and get the domain. Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of this process. So they have easy-to-use tools to manage your domain... Anybody can do it, from regular people up to geeks like us. It is simple enough to use that you'll be comfortable figuring out for yourself, and the support team is always ready if you need a hand. In less than five minutes, you can find the domain you're looking for and get it up and running. All you have to do is search for a few keywords. Hover will show you the best available options across all the domain extensions out there, and there are so many domain extensions these days. You can get .anything these days. Hover has all of them. The website is very clean, very simple. You don't have to mess around with a very complex interface. It is just very nice, very respectful of you, the user, and very well designed. Now, if you've ever registered a domain name anywhere else, you know that those are not common traits in this business. Uh, It is very unusual to find uh, a domain name registrar that is uh, friendly and seems to have your best interests in mind and is also pretty and well-designed and easy to use. Those are, I, I've never found anybody else who, who actually did all those things, and I've seen a lot of them. Hover really nails it. I have used others. Hover is my favorite by far. Uh, they don't try to upsell you with crazy stuff. They include stuff for free that they, that they think should be free, like who is privacy, uh, and they have great add-ons if you need them for things like email, uh, and they also have this great service called Valley Transfer Service, where if you want, you can give them the login to your old domain registrar if you're transferring names in, and they will go in and log in and do the transfer for you to transfer them over to Hover. And this is tricky. You know, if you do it yourself, you got to deal with all these transfer codes and these unlocks and everything, and then you got to move the DNS over and make sure you don't mess up your DNS settings. If you have mail, you got to move that over. Uh, it can be pretty stressful and pretty tricky and pretty error-prone. They have experts ready to do it for you for free if you want. Uh, so anyway, go to hover.com, use code infinite timescale at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. They are great. Once again, I cannot say enough great things about Hover. Great domain name registrar. If you need valid transfer service to transfer your stuff in, if you need support, you can even call them on the phone. They actually pick up. They have a no wait, no hold, no transfer phone policy where they, if you call them on the phone, a human being picks up who can help you right then. No waits, no holds, no transfers. It's amazing. Check it out. Hover.com. Use code infinite timescale at checkout for 10% off your first purchase. Thanks a lot to Hover for sponsoring our show once again. I have a couple of questions about upgrading. So last year I was off cycle, but I treated myself and somehow convinced Aaron that it was worth it to get a six out of contract. Uh, well, that's not even true. It was like kind of in contract. I don't know. It was weird. Anyway. Like the half subsidy where you pay like 400 bucks for it or something? Exactly. This is on AT&T. Um, this year, Aaron is unequivocally due for a new phone. Her 5S is um, two years old or will be two years old. It is her time. Uh, we'll see if I can convince her slash me if uh, I should also get a new phone. We'll see how that goes. But my understanding, and I've not really had any time to look into this yet, but my understanding is AT&T and most of the other carriers have largely done away with the subsidy and two-year contract dance that has been going on for forever and a day. Do you guys happen to know anything about how this is working? Oh, man, I, I tried doing research before the show because I've also heard the same thing that uh, apparently um, in Apple stores this fall, if you buy the phone through an Apple store, 
apparently they I heard that they won't do subsidies at all or that they you have to do these like AT&T Next type plans where like you pay per month additional amounts for the phone for like X months and which by the way is apparently like how the entire rest of the world works you know? and is the, like it's the more sane way to do it it is the the less manipulative way so the, the way things are priced now is to fool you into like to you know you're not good people's brains aren't good at realizing exactly how much money they're paying over the x number of years for this like they don't see the subsidy they're like oh i get a phone for 200 bucks and i have a monthly bill that feels so much better to me and no one wants to do the math to figure out you know what you're actually paying more so i'm kind of baffled as to why they're changing it because the voodoo of that pricing works really well uh, maybe competitive pressure from i don't know from t-mobile i can't even think of why they would change this you know because the the underdog the crappy carriers that don't have good coverage that are trying to get customers are like hey we have honest pricing and you can do math and figure out how it works and blah 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 to try to attract customers maybe that's putting some pressure on at&t and verizon but honestly it's a mystery to me why they would why they would go from a confusing pricing plan that makes people feel like they're not paying a lot but really they are to a pricing plan that is initially more off-putting because you see the real costs, but is actually more fair fair and understandable in the long term. But one thing's for sure, I think this is not good news for Apple. Like to me, I think I think having the iPhone being compared on unsubsidized pricing at any level, even if you try to, you know, put it in as like, well, this is the iPhone 6S will be $25 a month more and the iPhone 6 will be $20 a month more. You know, even if you try to break it into like a kind of like layaway plan pricing like that having the real price become more visible in any way without these subsidies is almost certain to negatively affect iphone sales don't you think it'll negatively affect all sales like aren't the carriers doing this across all their phones or just for the iphone they i think they are doing it across all their phones but uh now it is creating a price umbrella for people to go under apple on and some phones already are cheaper than apples i think it'll greatly help things like um like what are the, what's the is it the moto x whatever the cheap uh but but they's, oh, they've always been cheaper they've always been like the free with contract phone or whatever like i, I guess it depends on like how much bigger are apple subsidies than they are for the basically comparable phones for the top of the line samsung smartphone or whatever like because the, the i think the the pricing on the box is uh, isn't it been similar like it's you know 199 to get you into the the best samsung galaxy s whatever they're up to and 199 for the best iphone and the only difference may be well actually behind the scenes even though the 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 list price for you is 199 plus you know to your contract behind the scenes the carriers are paying apple way more than they're paying samsung and so once that becomes visible suddenly it's not 199 versus 199 it's actually a much bigger number for the iphone versus a smaller number for for the supposedly equivalent top of the line you know, Samsung phone. If that's true, then that could hurt Apple. But I think it'll just hurt everybody across the board because people don't want to see the real fight, the real price of their their smartphone. I mean, I guess we get used to it because, like you said, that's how the rest of the world kind of does it, and it's still kind of hidden. You know, it's like plus X number of amounts per month for X number of months, and that'll still be enough multiplication to stop people from doing it, as opposed to like <laughs> basically buying an unlock phone and like, okay, give me twelve hundred dollars, whatever the hell it is for the unlock. And you're like, whoa, whoa, I'm not using a twelve hundred dollar <laughs> phone. It's like you are, you just don't know it. Right. And and the other problem is in the US, you know, up till now in the US, if if you kept buying like the the contract discounts basically. Uh and these these plans have been like these pay every month things have been around for what about a year or two now, but a lot of people still haven't been using them. And so up until now, if you if you're on one of the big carriers, basically AT&T and Verizon in the US, if you let's say you 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 were on a 2-year contract, uh at the end of those 2 years, your bill doesn't go down. Like once your phone is like quote paid off from for the contract, your bill has not decreased. 
And so you, you basically had a reason to go into the phone store and pick out a new phone for, quote, free every two years because you could because there was no there was no new cost to you to do that because you were paying for a subsidy whether you were using it or not your 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 bill stayed the same with these plans that is changing and so now i think you're right john like you know this is two-sided one is apple could be vulnerable to people having cheaper phones than them but two which is bigger which you're right affects everybody is that now i think people will expect their phones to last longer than two years and they won't upgrade as frequently because the whole the entire the entire smartphone business the reason why apple is never going to find another thing like the iphone there's never going to be like the next great product that is as good financially for apple as the iphone was because there is nothing like the subsidized cell phone market like there is nothing it's it's such a weird little oddity of a market where everybody buys a phone like everybody and smartphones in so many countries and especially in the u.s have been so heavily subsidized over the years that not only is everybody buying these expensive devices and and they could have these high behind the scenes prices because nobody was seeing them but also People would update them constantly. People update their phones way more often than they would update their computers or any or any other like five hundred dollar electronic device or more. You know, people update their phones every. I think it was like every eighteen months on average, something like that for for most of the world. I just think that's partly because phones are at the point where they're getting so we're in like like the early phase of smartphones. Like every new phone is better in some significant way, and eventually that will start slowing down, just like it did with PCs. Maybe, but this this subsidy model that we've had has been, I think, artificially inflating both the prices that these companies can charge for the phones. Because, you know, an iPod Touch with an A8 inside and a great screen and everything is 200 bucks, And that same device in a phone is 650 it does have a it does have a bigger screen. I, yeah, I know, areas, but, but you're right. Yeah, yeah they, they can make more money. And same thing with the carriers. Like, well, how how can the carriers charge so much money? It's, you know, because they have a monopoly on all the you know a near monopoly on all the stupid cell towers and infrastructure and the barrier to entry to everyone else and all that other crap. Like, why is it? Why are they able to charge us so much money? Like, there is not enough competition in the space of of charging us. But even they they're feeling the pressure. The places where there are competition, there is enough pressure to drive their prices down and. Like a lot of the reason, you know, like, oh, this has been so subsidized. Who's subsidizing it? Who is doing it? It's the carriers because they know the total lifetime value of the customer is huge because they're going to get some massive monthly bill that people will be like, all right, I guess I just got to pay $100 a month for my whole family or more uh, to use cell phones because you got to have a cell phone. And so who is subsidizing this? The carriers like, all right, fine, Apple, we'll pay you $700 because we know the lifetime value of that customer is huge. Because like you said, you know, you get a huge bill. It's monthly. They just feel like they have to pay it like a utility. If you're lucky, you have limited or no competition in your area uh, for, or maybe there's like one other company or two other companies that you can maybe collude with unless they're T-Mobile and they're a thorn in your side, you know, like or maybe you're Verizon and your network is really mediocre, but everyone thinks it's the best one in the country for some reason. Amen. Well, it's better, it's better than T-Mobile's, right? And, you know, and the barrier to entry is high and all these other things, right? And so that should start to work itself out. Hopefully that they can't just continue to, to charge huge amounts. And if they can't charge huge amounts, the lifetime cost value of, of a customer is not as high. So they can't, they won't be giving Apple as big as subsidies, whether they're splitting it out or not. Like, anyway, I, I don't understand enough about this change in pricing to understand what's motivating it. But for me, it seems like what they're doing is better for consumers and worse for, apple and carriers and so i'm obviously missing something big here 
Yeah, I, I generally feel the same way. Like I, I and maybe the carriers are trying to take away some of the power of Apple and and like the high end device makers. Yeah, it could it could be a power struggle like that. Yeah, uh, but but I definitely think that this is most likely to lead to longer phone upgrade cycles, which is bad for both of those, and and lower monthly bills. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you could be that, that power struggle makes sense to me because I think. Uh, you know, you, we always know that Apple's made more demands of the carriers than other companies because they yeah. could and because that's kind of, you know, they're hard negotiators. And, you know, for a long time, it was just an AT&T and, you know, like they've made more demands. And one of those more demands is you're going to pay us a higher subsidy and they're going to be like, well, you know, and, and we you're not allowed to put your crapware on our phones and all that stuff. And from the carrier's perspective, I think they like Android phones better because they have more power over the Android phones. And as far as they're concerned, like, I don't even care what the hell crappy phone you use. I just care that you pay me your monthly bill. So for from a carrier's perspective, it's better if you buy one of their cheaper, crappier phones that they get to put their crapware on. Uh they don't care if you you know buy a new one of those don't buy a new one like whatever if we have to pay a lower subsidy i think i feel like from a carrier's perspective they'd be happier if people use cheaper crappier phones but just continue to pay the high same high monthly bills you know it's better for them than having to deal with apple and all its demands and not being able to put their crapware on it and having to pay them a bigger subsidy than everybody else because everyone loves a stupid iphone and so yeah that that is an explanation that, that makes sense to me um I'm still not sure, entirely sure it's not the carrier shooting themselves in the foot because it seems like as demanding as Apple is and what power they might have, Android is the majority of the market anyway. And so do they really need to just like continue to smush Apple into an ever smaller slice of the pie? I don't know. Well, but Apple Apple still has a lot of power in that people are willing to switch carriers for iPhones. And, and they don't they probably aren't as willing to do that for android phones and also they don't really need to because android phones are everywhere but like you know if if apple decides not to work with your carrier anymore that's kind of bad news for your carrier yeah i guess that's true and you know apple customers have a lot of money because the phones are expensive and so maybe they're the good customers who can pay for your fancier plans where you overcharge them for more bandwidth that really doesn't cost you much more and i don't know but do you really think that apple would say to at&t or Verizon, no, I'm not going to be on on either of your networks anymore. Like, there's no freaking way that Apple would do that. They might threaten it or allude to threatening. <laughs> you know, it's negotiations. Like, I don't know. I mean, hell, they were on at and only for a really long time, which if you look at it, you're like, boy, is that seriously Apple still at and only? Like, when is the Verizon iPhone coming? You know, and well, was- but hold on, though, that's because at that point in time, Marco was absolutely right that back then Verizon really was the only network that really freaking worked. And so Verizon had a lot more leverage. And I think that 18 or excuse me, Apple couldn't put the squeeze to Verizon like they did to AT&T. I know, but until Apple held out. Verizon had the leverage. It seems like Apple should have been forced to come over to Verizon even sooner because Apple because Verizon had all the leverage. We're the best network. You're on that crappy AT&T. It's hurting you in the press. You should totally come over to us. But Apple held off for a really long time. So you're saying it does. Would Apple ever even threaten to pull out of like, you know, AT&T or whatever? No way. I think I feel like they would. Whether they would actually do it, probably not. But Maybe they'd threaten, but no way they'd do it. And also, I just want to quickly underscore what uh, Marco said earlier. I have, and this is actually a kind of good transition, um, I have a Verizon iPad mini. The original Retina iPad Mini, or as I love to say, my Retina Pad Mini. Um, it's a, it came with a Verizon SIM, but I got a T-Mobile SIM after the fact. And I'll flip back and forth between them willy-nilly as I see fit. Um, 
and my phone, like I said earlier, is AT&T. So I, I have devices that can use data on AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. And Marco, I could not agree with you more. Everyone who has been a loyal Verizon user for a decade or more swears that Verizon has the best service in the entire world. I really don't think that's true at all. I would even go so far as to say I think AT&T service is actually more robust and faster than Verizon in anywhere I ever typically travel. So I just wanted to say uh, amen to that. I agree with you. We're going to get so many people telling us otherwise. However, I totally agree. I, I do the same thing where I, I used to have Verizon phones back before the iPhone and and. and I had Verizon data sticks for a while after that, and then I started tethering, and then then I got Verizon iPads. Uh, and so I've had an AT&T phone and Verizon data devices for a very long time now. And it is no contest that the Verizon... Like, Verizon used to be the best network, and I think they are, they've are they banked on that with their reputation for so long. Don't they still have the best coverage in the U.S. anyway? Like, just in terms of, like, total square miles of where you can get a decent signal? I think they might, but, but AT&T has closed that gap so much. Like, that right now, there are places like, oh, that don't have AT&T reception, but they don't have Verizon reception either. <laughs> it's like, you know, certain places of state, they have neither. They have no, no carriers, and that's fine. AT&T, it's been a very long time since I have found a place where AT&T is not covered, but Verizon does. And the opposite, where I have tried to use Verizon data somewhere, and it has, like, one circle and is unusable, and then I'd go, tr- go try AT&T, and it's, like, three circles and perfectly usable and fast. That happens a lot. Like, I, I really think that Verizon, for whatever reason, I don't know if there's a, if there's a radio theory to back this up or if this is just coincidence, Verizon seems to really suck at indoor coverage way more than AT&T does. And, and this, anecdotally, this has always been the problem. Like, people rave about how, how much their Verizon phones are great, Verizon's the best network, and they come into your house and they can't make a call. You know, or like, <laughs> like when I have Verizon phones, like, you know, yeah, it'd be great until we go into a grocery store and then all oh, the call drops or data doesn't work anymore. Like it, that has always been the problem I've had with Verizon. I have family members and friends who still have Verizon today. Those problems have never gone away for them. And AT&T has really, the, the best thing to ever happen to AT&T was Verizon iPhones coming out because that unloaded a lot of AT&T's network. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so they like, AT&T's network has been rock solid for me for the last i would say at least three years like before that it was Agreed. a little bit spotty i'd say for a good three years at&t's network has been awesome for me with tethering yep. with travel all sorts of different places with voice everything has been solid and verizon the verizon devices i've had i i have been only they, i've only seen mediocrity from them uh the verizon people i know who use it on their phones they keep complaining about the same mediocre problems that i that i always had with verizon back in the day and I don't think I will buy any more Verizon devices because my, my original my, the original reason I, I would buy Verizon iPads and keep my AT&T phone is what if I'm somewhere where AT&T doesn't cover very well, but Verizon covers it better? And that used to be the case of it, like when I would travel to San Francisco for WBDC, I would use like I, I could use the faster one for tethering. And that one was usually the Verizon one back in the day, like when LTE was first coming out and everything. That was the Verizon one. In the last two years, I would say, the Verizon one has never been the faster one. Not once. Like, it, every time I try, like, the AT, I always end up using go back to the phone because it's way faster. Uh, so I think I'm done buying Verizon stuff. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I know that there are people that are listening right now that are saying, oh, but in my particular part of the country, be that completely rural or completely, um, what the hell is the opposite of rural? 
urban. Thank you. God, I had a total brain fart there. Anyway, uh, completely urban or completely rural, Verizon is the only one that works. You all are crazy. I'm sure there are parts of the country that that's true. Well, that's what I'm getting at, because we don't, we don't go to the whole country. We go to like sure. five spots in the country, right? So I'm saying, <laughs> I'm saying it, is still, it is still entirely possible, even if those five spots are city, city, rural, city, it's still entirely possible that Verizon still has the best coverage in terms of if you put a little pin in every square mile of the country and check the signal strength for AT&T and Verizon, the Verizon still covers more. Like that has always been the thing with Verizon that not necessarily that it's always the fastest connection, but that if you sample the entire country, you can get a Verizon signal or a stronger Verizon signal in more places than you can get AT&T. As AT&T has been building out, I'm assuming they've been building out in the population centers first. So yeah, New York City, San Francisco or whatever. And there are still places where you can't get either one of them, but I'm uh, like I don't know. I know I'm in kind of a cell phone dead area. The only thing I know is that T-Mobile gets crap signal here, and that I can actually receive phone calls inside my house with Verizon. I don't have an AT&T data point to go by, um, but I'm still entirely willing to believe that Verizon still has better overall coverage. And then it just boils down to okay, but I don't go in the whole country. I go to these seven places, and the seven places that I go, who has better signal? Who has faster data or whatever? And an indoor thing, I think maybe Moscone must have some kind of Verizon repeater because I get crazy good signal during WWC deep inside the bowels of that building through like many layers of maybe they're just because they're like fabric fabric partitions or whatever. Don't you get awesome Verizons? Maybe you don't use Verizon anymore. Well, I, I get awesome AT&T coverage in there I, I to the point where I, I usually don't join the Wi-Fi with my phone. I, I don't. I don't use the Wi-Fi anymore. I use Verizon only and I get great signal, fast download speeds. Yeah. So I don't, you know, again, I don't know if like Verizon week indoors type of thing, whatever is going on in Moscone is definitely not week indoors there. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Um, but anyway, the one the one other thing I want to talk about, and then we should probably wrap, is I kind of cracked the screen on my beloved iPad Mini when I was at the beach. I wasn't uh. holding it. I didn't drop it. It was in my uh, beach bag, my book bag. And um, I, I guess I'd, for whatever reason, maybe Declan had an issue or whatever, I didn't flap the um, smart cover closed. And so there's this little hairline. In fact, I thought it was a hair crack. So if you're holding the iPad in portrait, it's just a little like semicircle that only dips into the visible screen area right where the edge of the battery indicator is when you're holding in portrait in the portrait right side up uh, orientation. Ruined. Throw it away. It's ruined. It's absolutely freaking ruined. Wait, so, so, so what did it? <laughs> I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But what I know is I it wasn't cracked. I put it in the bag that we had towels and the camera and a whole bunch of other junk in that we were t- that we had taken down to the beach. And when I pulled it back out, it had this hairline crack in it. I presume we picked up the bag or threw something into the bag. I genuinely don't know. Uh you you we all know that I fess up when I do dumb crap to my devices. Um I genuinely don't know what happened. It must have been my fault some way, but I don't know what happened. Um and so the reason I bring this up is because it was about time to upgrade the iPad anyway. I was I, like the iOS 9 stuff I'm actually kind of amped up about um, for the iPad. And so I was probably going to get a new one, but now I'm definitely going to get a new one. Well, I really happen to like having cellular iPads. I understand that most people tether and that works for them. I'm still on the unlimited plan I on AT&T, which doesn't allow me to tether. I understand that I could probably save money and it doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. This is the way it is. This is what I'm dealing with. This is a choice I'm making. So I'm going to get probably a, uh, a new iPad mini with cellular this upcoming fall. 
The question I have, and that I genuinely don't know the answer to, is my understanding of this, having not really paid much attention in the last couple of years, is that uh, cellular iPads have the Apple SIM in them. And what I'm not clear on is, my recollection of when they first came out was that once you committed to any of the carriers, you're locked to that carrier on that Apple SIM. So your device could choose between Verizon or T-Mobile or what have you up front, but the moment you choose, that's it forever. Is Do you guys happen to know, is that true, or can you flip-flop willy-nilly? No idea. I have heard the same thing as you, but I have no idea whether it's true. Yeah, someone someone who knows without question, not just anecdotally, like if you have some sort of web page somewhere that describes how this works, I'm assuming Renee Ritchie has something somewhere and I just don't realize it. I would love to see it. So uh, send me a tweet or something like that. Because what I, the reason I bring this up is, I like I said, I bounce back and forth between T-Mobile and Verizon. I find that T-Mobile's coverage does indeed suck. However, when it is good, it's great. And so... It's much faster than Verizon and oftentimes much more reliable than Verizon when you're in a metro center that actually has T-Mobile service, you know, one of the three areas of the country. Um, And so I'd like to be able to flip back and forth. Additionally, T-Mobile presently is giving me 200 megs a month of data for free. I don't know if that would still be the case in a brand new iPad, but I'd love it to be the case. And so I would rather not um, get that the Apple SIM locked to Verizon um, if I can avoid it. And maybe the answer is if Verizon is the only thing that, that locks, maybe I do what Marco was alluding to earlier. And I, if I flip flop at all, I do it between AT&T and T-Mobile. But if there is some clear documentation somewhere that I can read, I, I would love to, I would love to read it. So please uh, send me a tweet and let me know. I, I'd really love to see it. It's probably worth considering just getting a Verizon SIM and swapping that in and out, or getting a second Apple SIM. Apparently, they will sell you a second Apple SIM. For oh, is that right? Oh, something. I didn't know that. Yeah, somebody in the chat said that's only five bucks. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, I mean, for for this kind of concern, first of all, just putting AT and T on it is probably the right choice, and you could probably add it to your phone plan for some minimal cost per month. But you know, if if you're going to do swapping at all between carriers, you might as well swap SIMs. It's just you know, just to be safe. Without then, you avoid this entire problem. Yeah, totally. I actually genuinely did not realize that that you could pop a different SIM in. I didn't know if the SIM was like soldered into the board because I, I really haven't had to pay attention to this because I wasn't planning on getting an iPad until this year. And so now is when I'm starting to think about these things and, and, and I'll have to do some research and we'll, maybe we'll have some follow-up about it since I know, John, you're probably very sad <laughs> about the lack of follow-up this week. Thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week, Cards Against Humanity, Harry's, and Hover. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm. And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them at C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S. So that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T, Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C, USA Syracuse. It's accidental.
disturbing thing about an extended family member on vacation this year. Oh. Now I am related to somebody who is using an iOS device with a completely cracked and shattered screen. We've all seen people do it. We've seen them in real life. You see people sitting there. You notice they're swiping their little thumb along their smartphone. And then you look closer and you realize the thing is just spiderwebbed to hell. Cracks through the whole thing, right? <laughs> Everyone has seen someone doing that. And you think, mm-hmm. why don't they Why don't they get that fixed? Is this just like a permanent thing? Are they going to put a piece of packing tape over it and just say, you know what? I'm just going to use it like <laughs> this until my contract expires in a year and a half. And they just do. And you wonder, like, eventually, will they wiggle loose? Are they going to slice their finger open on that? Uh, is this a permanent state of being? Don't they get annoyed trying to look through the cracks where the refraction makes the little image messed up or whatever? Um, and now I'm related to someone who's doing that. And I could not <laughs> I could not convince them to, you know, pay the $99 or whatever it costs to replace the screen of the thing. So they're just going to keep using it like that until, I don't know, until they stop using it. Speaking of... Di- do you guys know how much it is to get the iPad mini screen replaced? It's not worth it. Probably more than 99. Obviously, this is this is I'm talking about a phone size device. Well, because I, I can tell you like I, so my my kid's iPad has a cracked screen and it's a very small crack, but it is a crack. And so we looked in it, it's the very first iPad mini with the terrible non retina screen. Um, we looked into what it would cost to replace the glass. And it was I forget exactly what it was, but it was something it, it was basically like it is the cost of buying a new iPad or it's very close to it for the low end ones. It's probably different on like an air where you're spending, you know, if it's worth 500 bucks, then you know it might be different. But uh, for the, for the minis, it's like 200 bucks and it's really barely, if at all worth doing. That's a bummer. So yeah, that, so we, we just quote fixed it by getting a like $6 screen protector that sticks on. (laughs) More people, more people I know who are just like cracks, cracks happen. You know, you figure like, I figured you would have just bought a new mini. I guess you're waiting for the new ones to come out before you bother. Well, it's first of all, so it's, it's the first generation non retina and it's, it's to play occasional kid games on. He doesn't give a crap whether the screen is retina and whether it's new or fast. So I'm like, okay, I have this. I'm, there's nothing else I can do with this. It's not even worth reselling, like especially with a cracked screen. It's not worth much. Uh, it, there's nothing I can do with this. So you know, I'll just let him use it till it dies. I have Casey's Retina Pad Mini. I have that model of iPad that's been sitting in a drawer unused, and I keep meaning to like sell it, or get rid of it. But I'm like, well, I, you know, if Adam's iPad dies, and I can just you know kick him down, you know, kick that one down into his slot, and you know, I don't know. Now I can just mail it to Casey, I guess. But <laughs> is it cellular? Yeah, it's Verizon. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, I'll take it. Do you guys remember when shampoo used to come in glass bottles? No. I think that was like the 50s, and you're really old. No, I, I don't, you know. <laughs> anyway, uh, do you remember? I think it was like maybe Prell. There was some particular brand. Anyway, I feel like that our grandkids, when we tell them stories that we used to carry about, around a bunch of rectangles that were made of glass, and that sometimes they would crack and then people would just use them shattered or sometimes the, like they will, <laughs> they will, they will look at us and the same way we think about you had glass bottles of shampoo in the shower. Doesn't that seem idiotic? Like, why didn't you just, you know, make them out of plastic? And say, we didn't have plastic really that, you know, like it's, I feel like we're in this period where glass is the right material to be making it out of right now, unquestionably, but there are obvious downsides to glass that someday when we get past that and get a device that has like all the benefits of glass without the whole shattering and not being, you know, like they'll look back on this and go, you guys were carrying around glass things. It was like you were carrying around these fragile East uh, Fabergé eggs that if you dropped them on the cement, they would just like shatter or crack or spider web. And you had to put this 
it's going to look weird to them because already it seems to me like, is this really the best thing we should be doing? Everyone in the world carries around a little rectangle of glass. Is that, is that what we're going to do now? Seems absurd to me. Yeah, the um, the tipsters asking in the chat, you know, what am I to kind of recap? If I'm going to get a new mini this year, which isn't guaranteed, but it is my intention. Uh, what do I what do I care about the existing one? And the thing of it is, is that it's perfectly fine with the exception of this stupid hairline crack. And so I feel terrible, like not that I would necessarily throw it away. I'd probably like gazelle it and just take the hit on the crack screen. But I, I feel like this is a perfectly usable device. I mean, I just told you earlier that I'm using a 3GS every single day in 2015. To, to just get rid of this seems so stupid. Like I could use it for Declan in a, in a year or two, maybe um, I could uh, give it to Aaron if she wanted it. There's so many things I could do with this. And so it seems so wrong not to get it fixed, but geez, for $200, it's probably not worth it. Yeah. It's, it's really, it is unlikely to be worth Apple's fix. Now, there are also third-party fixes. There's also do-it-yourself fixes. I didn't look into all, any of those options because I, I did like five minutes of looking into it, and it seemed like it was not only very difficult, but also like not that much cheaper. Like I think it was like maybe 150 bucks. It, it wasn't. It wasn't that much cheaper. So I was like, ah, it's not worth it. Uh, but you know that it might be worth considering for you. But I, I think the better move is probably take the hit, sell it, and uh, and just get something new. Or do what I did and stick a $10 screen protector on it and give it to Declan to play stupid games on because kids really don't care. Yeah, yeah, I know. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's, I'm just annoyed. Just like before, I'm annoyed at myself because this one is is not a quasi-deliberate action. Not that I deliberately poured water on Aaron's back <coughs> twice, but um, but I don't know. I wasn't even touching the damn thing when it broke, so I, I feel a little less guilty about it, but I still am frustrated. I still want to make it right. I don't know. You make that's it right, right by buying yourself a new iPad this fall. <laughs> See, that's the mark away. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, that's true. The, this happened to me, and I didn't do that. Fair enough. John, anything interesting from you? Did you break any iPads at the beach? I did not break any of my things, although when I came home from vacation, I found that my hot water heater was leaking, so that's a nice welcome home. Did, that, did it ruin anything? What happened? Uh, it did ruin a rug. Uh, it didn't, like, you know, flood the basement. It wasn't like all the water in the hot water heater came out and went onto my floor, which is good because it would just keep going, right? But enough water. Because yeah, that's usually what happens when they fail. Right. Well, they tend to also, like, fail slowly and start weeping. It was, just, it was just leaking over the course of a week and, you know, covered the floor with barely enough water to basically soak and ruin a rug, but didn't, you know, cover the whole basement floor. Anyway, we have a new hot water heater now. Did you go tankless? Uh, no, we talked about it again. We talk about it every time we replace it. It's still uh, not the thing for us to do. And why do you say that? Uh, that's what they say. I talked to them about it. Basically, if you if you have what we have, which is like a uh, a, yeah, a boiler for making hot water for heat, uh, an older one that mm. vents to the chimney, and then you have a hot water heater and you just want to replace the hot water heater, you could go tankless, but there's still issues of how much pressure can it put out if you're running all your hot water things at the same time. And the better way to do it is to just replace your entire system with a new high efficiency one that just vents directly to the outside, doesn't need to go through the chimney. And that does the hot water for all your radiators and the the tankless hot water. And that has more capacity to, to you know, instantly heat the water. And he was talking about like basically when it's cold here in the winter, you get freezing cold water coming in from the outside and a lot of demand for hot water for all the radiators at the same time you're running the, you know, trying to wash the, the, the dishes in the sink with hot water and running a shower that it's very difficult to keep up with that. So we're sure as hell not replacing the entire system down there because it's fine. If you're just replacing the hot water heater, they recommended and, you know, and they're recommending me buy a cheaper thing from them with a 10 year warranty. So 
they're, you know, I, I basically trust the fact that if it really was better, they'd try to sell me the much more expensive tankless thing. But, uh, and they say they got every time I've talked to them, the same company, like that it goes in new construction all the time because it's like the, the, the sort of fancier, more expedient thing to do, but new construction has entire high efficiency system, not just like, Oh, you got an old boiler that does your hot water. And then next to it, we have just the tankless system. And they, then he still hears complaints from people who get them in new construction that it's not as good as a big tank. So we went with the big tank full of hot water. That is usually the most sensible economical option, even though we have fancier things. Like and my system is, fortunately, we didn't do it. The people before us did, but my system is the kind where there is one boiler for both heat and a big uh, heat exchange tank for the hot water, and so that we just have one big boiler that can do both and a big tank that it heats up also. And the the advantage there, it, you know, besides, I'm sure there's some efficiency gains, but. Uh, the, the biggest advantage is, like, uh, according to some guy who looked at it once, is that then the boiler is continually running year-round. So that tends to make them last longer because it isn't going, like, the whole, all the summer months without running at all. And then you start it up in the winter and hope it works. You know, it's, it, isn't, it doesn't have, like, those big cycles of non-use for a long time and then turning it on. But it's still vented to the chimney, right? Not just to the outside of your house? No, it has a direct outside vent. All right. Well, so then maybe it's one of those new higher efficiency systems. And yeah, like in mine, I can do the same thing as yours. There's another option is we have a big boiler. I could also, it you know, it has the hookups and, and supposedly perhaps the capacity to say, oh, this can also do your hot water. But it's like maybe barely got the capacity. And every time <laughs> yeah. that has come up, it's like better to just get a dedicated thing and be independent because it's not a big high efficiency thing. And, you know, it, it you may be borderline, you may be taking a downgrade in how much hot water uh, and how much hot water pressure you have available to you. So the new one is actually the same size as the old one, but fancier and like higher recovery so that once you start using the hot water, it will heat up sooner. Anyway, bottom line is we got the new thing installed and someone went to take a shower. Like the temperature is turned down like as low as it possibly can be. Like we always do in the summer to turn the, you know, the, the like sort of standby, this little dial that you can turn to say, how hot do you want me to keep the water in this tank? In the summer, you can keep it way lower because the water coming in uh, is warmer and you just don't want hot showers. We had it in the lowest possible setting and still the first person to take a shower, put, turn the little knob to like what they normally turn it to. And it was just scalding hot and incredible <laughs> amount of pressure. And it was nice. like, all right, the, the old hot water heater not only was leaking, but obviously it was crap at this point in its life cycle. It was like seven years old or whatever. We're just, just one year out of warranty. They make these things so precisely, you know. <laughs> so anyway, new one, new one has a 10 year warranty. So I need to put a reminder on my calendar for the 10 year anniversary before it starts leaking. Just make the call and. Don't even bother to see if it's going to last 11 or 12 years. Right. Just, no, just replace it. I've, I've been told now from multiple contractors and plumbers over the last couple of years that water heaters don't last as long as they used to and that they always die at about 10 years. And that like if you like it, it's now to the point where like if you buy a home, the home inspector will flag a 10 year old water heater as like a problem that needs to be addressed. Yeah, and because they <laughs> fail in ways that cause much more, you know, yeah. they're not that expensive. And when they fail, potentially big problems because, you know, you don't want your entire basement flooding with water coming, you know. So yeah, because usually the way they fail is the bottom falls off and all the water comes yeah. out. Well, the bottom falls off slowly. I've been lucky. The two hot water heaters that we bought for this house, both of the previous ones failed by starting to leak slowly from the bottom, which is a good way to fail. Yeah. Although when you're on vacation, it's kind of scary that it was slowly leaking from the bottom for an entire week when we weren't here. <laughs> All right, do you have a door yet? No. Cool. How was the vacation? That's fine. So, Casey, besides losing your iPad to your vacation, is that? Yeah, it was good. Um, 
Declan did not like the water. Did not like the water. Um, My liked kind the of beach kid. just fine. Yeah, right. I uh, liked the beach just fine. Got him near the water. And as long as he wasn't touching the water, everything was mostly okay. But even just dipping his little feet in the water, like way up at the very edge of where the wave can reach, you know, so I'm talking about it's, you know, a quarter inch of water on sand. Um, he did not care for that at all, which is fine. That's standard baby behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not bothered by it. Um, but I will say he is crawling like a champion now, starting to pull up on things now. Um, sort of, I mean, he's not standing without holding on to stuff, but you know, he can like stand for a long time, like tripoded. So he's got, you know, his hands on something and his feet on the ground. Um, so that's both wonderful and petrifying all at the same time, but progress is being made. My parents were here, um, when I was at work, uh, they tend to come in, uh, once a week to give Aaron a little break and let her, you know, go grocery shopping without the baby or whatever. And, um, and they said in the last two weeks, because they just hadn't seen him in two weeks, they said that the change was just tremendous, which, I mean, that's to be expected when, when it's a baby. I'm not saying that. You know, I'm not trying to be like, well, my baby is the most smart baby ever. It's none of that. It's just, you know, babies change quick, as it turns out. And uh, so lots happening. Big doings around the List household. But uh, you got to concentrate on the weekends when you're home or nights when you're home or whatever. Concentrate on getting him to, if you want to see his first steps chances are he'll do it when you're at work so you have to basically take him during the weekend and say now we're going to do the first steps because the only way you're going to see it is if you make it happen yeah yeah and i've been like holding his hands like when he's standing and trying to like tilt him forward enough that he's like just to keep his center of gravity under him that's probably not the wrong way to describe it but anyways just to keep himself balanced you know he'll have to bring a foot forward and sometimes he gets it sometimes he doesn't um but it's been funny. He's also occasionally mimicking us, sometimes directly, sometimes vaguely. Um, so, like, we'll tilt our head from one side to the other, and sometimes he'll tilt his head the same way and sometimes not. Uh, sometimes we shake our head like no, not not to indicate not to do something, but just to shake left and right. Uh, sometimes he'll, like, follow follow that and shake his head left and right, which is really adorable. Um, he's becoming more and more a person with each passing day, which is wild. Um Shoot, there was something else I was going to ask you. Oh, did you get your new camera? It's arriving tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) So what was in those big boxes? Just lenses? Lenses, yeah. And the lens is so tiny, like... No, no, no. Can we back up just a smidge? You ordered a new Sony camera that's full frame with interchangeable lenses. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. So this is kind of like that that crazy Sony you had at my house for Top Gear a couple years ago with the crazy good low light? It is extremely similar in many ways to that, but just with a larger body and with interchangeable lenses. And one of the lenses I bought, yeah, so that, that was the RX1 that you're talking about, which I have since sold. You sold something? No way. Yeah, right? And one of the lenses I bought uh, is basically the lens that was on that. It's a little 35mm prime, the uh, Sony F2.8 uh, 35mm prime. Uh, and like optically, the measurements are almost identical. It's like it, it, it's about the same size. It's yeah, it's very, very similar. Uh, so because I love that that little that, that focal length and the small package. Uh, but yeah, so the camera I got is the uh, A7R2. And uh, it, it, it just came out today. And that my order from B&H, which I placed like iPhone style by refreshing the page back when it went for sale in June. And it just shipped today in the U.S., uh, so I will I will have it tomorrow because I'm very close to B&H's warehouse. Uh, so everything I get from there comes in one day. And uh, yeah, so I got the 35 uh, 2.8 Prime. I got the 55 1.8, which is one of the best lenses in the world by most measures. And uh, I ordered the uh, 90 Macro, which is 
very very new, but everyone seems to think it's amazing so far. It's getting stellar reviews. So this is my first uh, upgrade to my big camera uh, since since the RX one maybe when I bought that like two years ago, but. That was kind of a temporary thing that I ended up not sticking with. Um, before that, my last upgrade to my big camera and the last upgrade that I had to interchangeable lenses was in 2008 with the 5D Mark II. Uh, so this is, it's been a long time coming. This, this one I re- totally replace using any Canons for me. Uh, Tiff is still using the Canons, and she still does uh, photo shoots. So we will see. She's, she's interested in the new camera. And uh, so maybe we might convert the whole system over. I'm at least most likely going to sell some of the Canon lenses uh, that we don't really use out in Tiff's photo shoots uh, because I don't. I'm never going to use them again. So why wouldn't a professional photographer want to use a full frame camera with interchangeable lenses? If they, let's suppose you really you were really good at photography, but you sold all your stuff. You're doing other you're doing other things for a while, but now you're you're starting the business back up and you're looking to buy all new cameras, all new glass. Why why not buy this? What's wrong with this? The the biggest thing for pros and and a lot of pros are buying this. Uh, so that's that's one thing. And and you know the, one of the reasons why. I think Tiff is likely to stick with the 5D Mark IIs for we 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 have two of them. We each got one in 2008, um, and and one of the reasons why we're likely to stick with those for a while is the same reason why we haven't upgraded since 2008, because there's a lot of inertia there. Like we have we have probably five or six batteries for it. We have tons of mm-hmm. compact flash memory cards for it. Some you know very good quality ones that are very expensive. Uh, we have a battery grip for one of them. We have a cable remote with a timer for time-lapse remote. We have uh, four speed light flashes, two old ones that were kind of flaky and two new ones that I bought to replace them recently. Um, so we, we just have so many accessories that, that are not universal, that only work with this with those cameras. We have so many accessories for them that like we didn't even upgrade to the, ne- to the Canon 5D Mark III because the 5D Mark II was so good and the Mark III for our purposes didn't seem like a very compelling upgrade to replace all this gear that we would have had to replace. We have, you know, in addition to that, all the all the Canon lenses and everything. So there's a lot of inertia behind sticking with what we have. But if that wasn't the case, if you didn't have any of that, what you what would prevent you? Like is the viewfinder not optical? Does that even matter anymore? What what would cause that? In anything mirrorless basically, I know there's going to be some exception weird, but basically the viewfinder is not optical. It's not like what you think of when you think of an SLR where you are looking through a prism through a, a, across a mirror into across out the lens. Like that is what defines an SLR is like the the single lens reflex. It's like you're looking through the lens with this mirror thing that flips up when you take a picture and exposes the sensor. So mirrorless cameras lack that. And yes, there's rangefinders and other weird things, but basically, you know, mirrorless cameras lack that. Um, and there are a lot of advantages to that. There, there's a lot that, that is very nice that I really enjoy about that. And this is a bit of a leap of faith for me, too. In the process of renting this, I also rented the Nikon D750, which is a fantastic traditional-style SLR. Uh, it is excellent in so many ways. It has an amazing focus system. It has amazing low-light performance, amazing sensor made by Sony, uh, coincidentally. And uh, it is a fantastic camera in many ways. Um, The reason why a pro might choose that, besides the handling and just preferring the looking through the lens directly through the optical thing and everything, is mostly just because there are certain things that appeal to pros and certain things that pros need. So certain things that appeal to them, there's, there's a huge... There's a much larger library of available lenses, first of all. Now, granted, you have to, you know, 
pick a system. So you got to pick Nikon or Canon or you know even the big Sony's, but nobody picks those. Um, and you know if you buy a Nikon camera, you you got to use Nikon's lenses. If you buy, and there are adapters, and there are adapters to use Nikon or Canon lenses on the Sony cameras, but you give up some things like there's some you know some some of them don't work quite right some of them don't focus very quickly if at all some of them you know they have little little bugs little glitches little little setbacks uh the adapters are all these kind of like hacky third-party things that are not supported by anybody uh so it's really not uh if if you have lenses that you want to use from canon or nikon's big lens lamps that stretch back like 20 years 30 years or longer uh, you can't really use those well on a small mirrorless camera. You can use them usually through the adapters, but you can't use them well. You're better off just getting the native body if, if you can. And because these mirrorless cameras have been around for way less time, the lens lamps are just way smaller. Like, one of my favorite lenses on the Canon is the 135 F2 Prime. It is awesome. There is no equivalent to that that I can mount on the Sony that is native. There are some that I can mount through adapters, and then I don't have autofocus and everything. Uh, or I can mount the Canon one through and have autofocus, but it might be weird. I don't know. Regardless, like there's no native one, and so that that's you know the, the lens library is small. That'll that'll change over time, but that is still the case. There's also things like there's no great first party flashes that have amazing metering, as far as I know. Like there is some you can use any flash, and you can have it you know you can manually meter it, but that's not as good. And so there's all sorts of stuff like that. Like there's there's just a lot more. Um, like limitations in what kind of gear is available, and then there's also things that that a lot of pros either need really, or at least would would want. So one of the biggest downsides to the Sony full frame system is that the cameras have terrible battery lives because they're really small, they're really high powered, you know, computationally, and they have these little tiny batteries that, <laughs> like the the battery for an for a full size SLR can last like five times as long. And full SLRs are not lighting up screens constantly in the viewfinder. So that's it's like these, these little cameras have terrible battery lives. That is the biggest downside to me. Uh, also, for pro use, the, the cameras are usually not weather sealed, which a lot of pros need and many pros want. And they are also, I don't think any of them have some of the more unusual but sometimes needed pro features like dual memory slots. Um, so there's like stuff like that. Like there's just, there's some features that pros need or want that are not available on mirrorless cameras and are probably not going to come soon. So we'll see what happens. I I'm very happy not being a pro in this way right now. <laughs> like I, I like back in 2008 we bought the the Pro 5D because it was the only way to get really great image quality. Like to get I mean. The difference, I mean, your camera's awesome, Casey, but but the difference between full frame and not full frame is large. It, this is not a small difference. It is a very big difference, and we just loved that difference. And and back then, there was a, a much bigger gap also. Now, the gap is smaller, but uh, it was much bigger back then. Well, it's also a considerably larger financial uh, penalty as well, right? Because I got... Um, a really, really beautiful lens, or at least I feel like it is, um, and it, on top of the kit. And off the top of my head, I want to say it was about $1,500 all in. So the kit lens, which is a little zoom, and uh, this uh, really good lens. It's not a pancake, but it's a really solid prime that uh, Sean Blanc recommended, which I love. Um, I, I couldn't even tell you the statistics off the top of my head. But uh, anyways, that was like $1,500 all in, 
And I'm going to, you don't have to tell me a number, but I'm going to guess that you're in a lot more than that for this full frame camera. A lot more than that. Yeah. I mean, and you can, I mean, part of it's because I just got like the cutting edge best model. Sure. Um, because I'm me and also because I don't upgrade these things very often. Um, so part of it is that uh, certainly I think even if you get like a more reasonably priced one, you're looking at for for a good lens and a good body, you're looking at over 2000 probably. Uh, for right. for this for this type, but uh, regardless, um, so yeah, that's that's what I got. I it arrives tomorrow. The there is there is no like massive full review available of it yet, uh, so it's a bit of a risk. But based on the early, I I, I rented its predecessor, the A seven two. I rented that back right before I rented the the D seven fifty. Um, I I rented that so I and and it has like. I, basically an identical body and identical handling identical menus that there's almost no difference um in like the the physical side so i know that i like shooting with it it just has a different sensor and uh and a better sensor so anyway i don't think it's that much of a risk but we'll see i have no idea <laughs>